Oddities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I'm Rob, and this week on Cinemodities, we are concluding our music video series with a Zach's Choice. And spoiler alert, possibly for our guest today, Lewis, a.k.a. Sleepy Skunk. Thank you for coming on, Lewis. We're happy to have you here. Uh, yeah. this, this is part of our music video series. <laughs> Did Zach tell you that? No, I blindsided him. Okay, good. <laughs> Wouldn't have it any other way. But since it is a Zach's choice, would you like to explain what we're discussing and why it's a music video today, Zach? Well, folks, after we talked about Animal Collective, the 18th tool, I realized I could not do the, those aforementioned bands justice. So I figured, where else could we go but Dua Lipa's Swan Song? It is the uh, quasi-music video tie-in to the film Alita Battle Angel, which just came out uh, like a week and a half ago. Or, well, by the time you're hearing this, a week and a half ago. And I figured, you know what? We're going to break new ground like we do on Cinemodies. We are going to use this one music video as a tie-in, much like how Rob talked about for Ender's Game. What was it, The Flaming Lips? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this time we actually have a case where the producers of the film wanted to do the actual or actually wanted to take the song so we're going to use that as our weird like shoving a square peg in a round hole in order to uh, talk about alita in the music video series oddly enough <laughs> on cinemodies we don't really cover new movies i think the last time we covered a, a new movie was what mandy back last october yeah yeah i would say the last one we covered that was this close to it coming out was probably uh sicario dose right yes sicario 2 day of the soldado (laughs) um but no so just to give a little bit of background on the film alita it's directed by robert rodriguez if you didn't know any better you'd know it was actually you'd think it was directed by its producer james cameron but as we like to affectionately call him jimmy c and it's essentially the story of a little cyborg girl whose name is Alita, who goes on a quasi coming of age quest. Uh, Rob, can you, do you want to describe this movie? I don't think I could describe it in three sentences or less. Uh, I, uh, three sentences or less is tough. Uh, <laughs> I would say maybe to boil it down to what I saw as its most basic principles, uh, visually impressive cyberpunk love story because i do think it was visually visually stunning beautiful it was great to look at but it was a very basic love story yeah fair enough but i figured let's bring our guests in we have mr lewis with us lewis do you want to try giving your own breakdown of this film considering that we both of us kind of did a so-so job at it (laughs) it's the story of a piece of trash that is found in a uh, giant junkyard and that's a leftover from a society that um, pretty much excludes everyone and everything that's not good enough for them. Um, but I guess um, uh, once that gets reanimated by this character played by Crystal Valls, um, it sort of goes on a quest to 
<clears throat> find its origins and eventually once it finds the answer to, uh, or we can say she, once she finds the answers to all her questions and she realizes that she's in the best position to strike back at uh, where she's from, which is the, the society that lives up above and that uh, makes everyone suffer for their own uh, personal gain. I like it, but it wasn't three sentences or less, so I'm going to take <laughs> some points off. That's okay. <laughs> no, I think that was very uh, eloquently put. Um, uh, but because I know there's a lot, of, half the fun of this movie is going through the entire plot. But I do not. I think this is one of those movies that you don't want anything given away. Even though it does have a rather traditional structure, you can kind of figure out where it's going. But some of the the really genuinely goofy parts of this are at the end. So um, before we get into a spoiler warning. I'm going to go around the room asking, first, Lewis, do you recommend this, yes or no? Yes. Rob? Uh, just a straight yes or no, I'm going to go with yes. All right. Uh, and third, I'm going to make it three, yes. So with that being said, if you've not seen this film, uh, please turn this off right now. You have a three out of three recommendation. Check it out. See it on the biggest screen possible, probably with the best sound system possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, 3D... Whatever, that's the viewer's discretion. Uh, but no, spoiler alert. Did, did anyone here see it in 3D, by any chance? Yeah, I did. Oh, oh. right on, right on. All right, I did not, so we're going to have to pick Lewis's brain about that. But yes, okay, yeah. spo- spoiler warnings in full effect. Um, all right, Lewis, considering that Rob and I didn't see this in 3D, did anything kind of really pop to you? Um, <clears throat> I think the 3D work is, is on par with what was done with Avatar. Um, so not not done in post uh, as a gimmick, but really shot composition that was meant to be seen in 3D. Um, so especially the movie has a lot of uh, large panning scope shots where you really see the universe building. Um, I think I think in 3D it's pretty impressive. It feels like you're inside, very similar to how you felt when you watched Avatar, and then they show you Pandora. They spend a lot of time making you feel like you're. You're there with the soldiers, so it's it's at the same level, I would say. All right, cool. Because I did not, I I was I wanted to see it in 3D, except my local theater, uh, Rob knows all about this, has a has two big theaters, and they originally were playing it in 3D on the big theater because the big theater is almost like a, like a like a watered down IMAX. And I'm like, okay, I want to see it in the big screen. And then it's like the last moment they pulled the 3D out of that theater, and I'm like. Uh, I, I want to see it on. A, I'd rather see it on a bigger screen than a smaller screen, but with 3D. So that's good to know. So, um, but no, you brought up Avatar, which I don't. I, I think I have to give my own backstory with this film, like I do with anything else on Cinemodies. Is I remember the first time I ever heard about Jimmy C working on this was like back in the mid 2000s. If anybody was really had their finger on the pulse of like movie gossip sites in the mid two thousands, it was on Yahoo Yahoo Movies Greg previews. I remember just like looking into what Jimmy C was doing next because at that point, like it was like two thousand five, two thousand six, and it's like, what is he like? What has he been doing since Titanic? I remember I can still vividly remember reading this. How many years later? It's like, oh, I'm working on this one project, Battle Angel Alita, or. I'm going to work on this project about a paraplegic uh, army veteran that gets the ability to walk again. And I'm like, oh, God, please, please don't pick the latter. <laughs> I was like, please, please don't pick that. 
And I remember obviously following Jimmy C for how many years. It was like, okay, he eventually picked that. And uh, Rob knows my history with Avatar. Mm-hmm. Um, Avatar being one of the greatest cinematic disappointments of probably my life. It's, it's, if it's not number one, it's definitely number two. And so I, I've always been just like, uh, Alita's been backburnered for me. I've always wanted to know, like, okay, what's happening with this? Because I did. It, it, I remember, obviously, anybody who didn't know what uh, Battle Angel was, you type it into Google and you get that very, I think it's like the, the first... I think it's the cover of the first copy or the first edition of the manga. And you see her with her wings and all this. Mm. And you see her like her um, below the chest skeletal body or like cyborg body. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. Like you've sold me on a concept. And basically ever since then, I've been following this thing very, very loosely. And I never, never had any urge to read the manga. And even prior to seeing the film, I had no interest in any of that. So I more or less went into this film blind except for uh, talking to lewis on twitter where he was the the person carrying the f- carrying the torch for this film it wasn't for him i think there's a, at least a few few hundred people out there that probably wouldn't have seen this film over the last weekend i think we can all agree that the first trailer came out like five years ago <laughs> i'm glad you brought that up that that is accurate that is accurate it was like oh yeah <laughs> Well, what, that hasn't come out yet? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, because well, I don't think Rob knows this about this, about Alita, Battle Angel, is that this was has been, like, moved around the calendar. How many times now, just between, it's been crowded with, like, competition, plus you have the whole Disney Fox thing, which has just a, been a cloud over most of their films released in the last 8 to 12 months. Because I remember the first time seeing this trailer in front of The Last Jedi, which came out in December of 2017. <laughs> I think it was Return it, of the Jedi, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, but yeah, I remember seeing it in front of that, like how many times. And I remember every single time I saw that trailer in front of The Last Jedi, like people would laugh at her eyes. And I'm like, oh God. Like the marketing, again, the marketing for this really was kind of subpar, just, or not even subpar, maybe just par, just like it didn't do anything to really sell the movie. And I remember seeing it, I think it got moved from July 2018 to December. I remember seeing it during the, it played in front of like every movie in the summer, like Mission Impossible Fallout, uh, uh, Ant-Man, The Wasp. It, it played basically in front of every single one of those movies. And then it was like, oh, okay, come December. It's like, oh, we're moving again to February. And it's like, oh my Lord. It's like, and then come December, it's like, okay, it's in front of Aquaman. It's in front of Spider-Verse. It's in front of this, in front of Bumblebee. And it's like, oh, um, it's one of those trailers that just like it played in front of every movie for a solid year, I think. I did not know that about this film. <laughs> I really didn't know much about uh, Alita in general. It's kind of a name that, you know, is, uh, you know, Battle Angel Alita in the back of my head, knowing about the manga, but I've never read it. Um, and when really Zach pitched this to me, it, it was more of the Jimmy C spin that got me to want to talk about it <laughs> than the actual concept of the movie. Rob, do you want to explain how I sold this to you? Ah, yes, I guess I should. Zach uh, hits me up one day and says, for some reason, Jimmy C's daughter is collecting reviews of Alita Battle Angel and sending them to Jimmy C. Do you want to try and get our name in the hat? (laughs) And of course, I had to say yes. Yes, we have a a weird connection with Jimmy C on this podcast with our with our Titanic Sinking the Mist series and director uh, Ryan Katzenbach. We, We have a I don't know. Like, like, it's funny. We've never covered a Jimmy C film before, but I feel like he's always hovering in the background of every, everything we talk about. 
Definitely. He's come up um, a, a good bit of times. We reference him quite a bit. Maybe more than we reference Mark Cuban and his money. <laughs> if only he'd return our phone calls. <laughs> the reason why we did this review was so we could get Jimmy C to listen to us. So, Mr. Cameron, uh, along with your daughter, we hope you're listening to this. Uh, but enough backstory. Let's delve into the film. So, I figure because... Rob, you're the one kind of coming at this with probably not the least interest in it, though, but you kind of were just kind of dragged into the the orbit of Alita. Sure. Going into this film, what were you expecting, and what did you think coming out of it? I was expecting a sci-fi film. You know, I knew it was a, an older manga, so I kind of, you know, I knew it was going to have that type of structure. Um, you know, I was thinking kind of, I had in my head something, you know, along the lines of Akira, because that's something we've talked about before, and some other manga I know. Um, things that, you know, have had animes, or film adaptions, things like that. Uh, so really, I think I might have saw one TV trailer for this in like the weeks leading up to watching it. And the thing that stood out the most was that um, Mahershala Ali was going to be in it, who I know best as Remy Danton from House of Cards. So I got excited about that. Um, coming out of the movie... Like I said before, I loved looking at it. I thought all of, like Lewis mentioned earlier, those wide panning shots, all of this world that they show us was absolutely beautiful. Uh, I And I loved the action sequences as well, and I thought it was, you know, very well done and understandable to my eyes, which is always what I'm looking for, apart from those, you know, terrible giant Marvel battles. The thing that really was my biggest disappointment was that, just super simple, basic love story that we got interjected the whole way through. And it's because there's nothing new to it. It's, it's you know, what I've seen a million times before, and I just wanted less of that and more of the, of the exposition. I wanted more rules of the universe. <laughs> All right, Lewis, considering that you're, you're the insider here, um, I, I think you got to see this before the general public did. What were you expecting from this film going in, and what did you take away from it coming out? I thought it was going to be total crap. <laughs> Just like um, what's what's the Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. I think I think the first time I, I was talking about Alita, I was like, oh, someone liked Valerian so much, they decided to lose $100 million <laughs> doing another one. Uh, Rob, did you ever see Valerian? No, I haven't seen that, but I know it because – you have it on our list of things to talk about coming up. <laughs> yeah, that actually, uh, next month, we're, I guess, uh, spoiler alert, next month we're going to be doing failed blockbusters. And at one, at one point, that was on the short list was uh, Valerian. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Top. That should be at the top of the short list. <laughs> Val Valerian is a – oh, God, okay. I don't want to get into Valerian. Um, but I'm sorry, Luz. I didn't mean to cut you off. That, no, that's all good. I mean, as, as far as the marketing goes, because we were talking about the marketing earlier, you can go back on hdtrailers.net or just YouTube and search like the very first trailer that came out for the film. And, and you'll notice like how much the effects have been worked on and improved and turned around. Like, because the first images that we saw from this film were not impressive. It looked like a video game, especially the motion. You can tell if the motion feels... Um, like reality feels like human movement or it feels computerized. Um, and Avatar was a film that had so much work done on it by the top talent in the world. And you, could, you couldn't see the difference between what was animated. And for the most part, like it was, it was very visually impressive. So I appreciate that they took the time to 
improve on it so much and the final product that they delivered like some some of the stuff they show in this film is pretty much state of the art like it's it's the one to beat in terms of um, realism of you know watching something that is unfilmable and yet that feels real um, so I think I think that's the threshold with the audience is that your best asset that makes people want to go see it is also your biggest failure if it's not good enough so you gotta you gotta do like go past that that bar uh, which is extremely high so we can segue into aladdin which right now <laughs> has revealed you know will smith <laughs> as a as a blue genie and it's uh it's not good uh but it doesn't mean it won't be good when it comes out they're working on it like the, the vfx artists that are working on this are just you know in a sea of empty cans of Red Bull, just, <laughs> you know, um, drowning in those cans to get to their desks and they're trying to get it done. So, you know, giving the extra time to the film was a brilliant decision, but it required extra investment. So most of the times these things don't happen when the tracking is poor and people's reaction to the initial trailer is poor. They're going to try to um, cut their losses and just say, well, we'll make money internationally. We'll just try to make more money on, on VOD or we'll even cut a deal with Netflix and not putting in theaters. That happened with Mowgli last year. So the idea is to minimize the risk and minimize the amount of money that you're bleeding when you're not getting the feedback you're supposed to get and the marketing is coming out and it's not, it's not connecting with audiences. But they decide to be bold and say, we're going to make this right. We're going to make this so impressive that people are going to drag each other to the theater and say, you have to see it on the big screen. Um, and it made sense not to release last summer, not to release last Christmas uh, against Aquaman and like Mary Poppins and Bumblebee. I think it would have fared very poorly. So uh, now they locked out because Lego Movie 2 didn't do very well. And Captain Marvel was coming out in three weeks. So there's plenty of time for people to convince one another to go see it. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's one of these titles where visuals make you or break you. Either everyone's going to laugh at you or, or complain about it, or everyone's going to tell each other that it's, it has to be seen on the big screen because it's so incredible. So um, it's impressive how much dedication the people behind those effects like decided to put in it. Like there's no way that everybody got paid every hour of overtime that was put in there because it's like, it's really, it's really intense work to make all these shots look the way they do. There's quite a few springboards in there I want to jump off of. Um, first, I have to ask Rob. Rob, do you know who's directing the new Aladdin movie? Uh, yeah, Guy Ritchie, right? Does that mean we're going to have to cover this at some point? Uh, well, I think I've said many times that I do love some Guy Ritchie movies. So possibly, yes. <laughs> possibly, yes. Okay, I just want to make sure you're aware of that. Um, but no, getting back to Lewis's point, like you're saying, the, the, ac the extra effects, the work... The man hours, the dollars that went into this. When Hollywood's MO, like you said, you provide numerous examples, is to kind of cut their losses if they can uh, read the tea leaves appropriately. And my question to that is, if this was any other filmmaker, they probably would have cut their losses. But do you think that considering this is a Jimmy C. passion project, and he is not just he's not hands off with this when it comes to the marketing campaign, he's making sure everybody and their brother knows that he is, uh, uh, elbows deep in this. <laughs> Do you think that 
that had like an effect into this his his involvement with this film yes a hundred percent um because before titanic came out in 1997 um every news outlet was writing about how it's going to be the biggest bomb of all time and it was over expensive and there were production problems and shooting problems some of the parts of the sets had like were drowning and if you could look back i don't know if the internet was you know uh keeping records back in that time uh but i mean yeah pretty much every headline leading to titanic was that he was going to be responsible for the biggest disastrous bomb um of all time the most expensive movie of all time and the biggest bomb that no one went to see of all time um, and then they started that again with Avatar about a month before it was coming out. People were like, there's no movie stars in it. It looks weird. He's gone off the deep end. Who's going to want to go see that? Um, and then one of them made 600 million domestic. The other one, 700 million and counting. And then that's just domestic internationally. I think they're both incredible. So I think nobody wants to bet against this guy and they shouldn't really. Um, like, like, who wants to bet against James Cameron when he made a very bad film, according to him, that he hated and that he wanted nothing to do with it and he almost didn't finish? It was True Lies, which is, like, awesome. I love that movie, yeah. <laughs> Same exact thing happened to me with wife number two, remember? I had no idea nothing's going on, right? I come home one day and the house is completely empty. And I mean completely empty. She even took the ice cube trays out of the freezer. What kind of a sick bitch takes the ice cube trays out of the freezer? Yeah, Jimmy C has a, has a complicated relationship with True Lies. And the fact that he still won't release that on Blu-ray, um, I think just goes to show that he's that he has problems with that film that nobody wants to talk about. I try telling people that nobody wants to listen. It's like, oh, everyone's like, where's the Abyss and True Lies Blu-ray? I'm like, the Abyss, I have no idea why he hasn't released that. I said, True Lies, he is so ashamed of that film. I'm surprised he still allows it like to be like aired on television and on DVD. But again, that that's a story for another day. Uh, but no, bringing up Avatar in my thoughts on Alita, uh, I, I Rob knows this, but I am a huge Jimmy C fan. If it weren't for Terminator and Titanic, more Titanic, I wouldn't be the person I am today. I don't know if I've ever said it on here before, but I saw Titanic five times in theaters when I was five years old. <laughs> it was a time when I was in kindergarten, according to my mother. Uh, all the te- the teachers at the time said I had ADD, and they're like, "Your son needs Ritalin." She's like, "My son sat through Titanic five times of his own volition. He's fine. He has no problem with concentrating." <laughs> for years, I was so excited for what Jimmy C was going to do next. Like I already mentioned, and when Av- I, when Avatar, ca- I, the hype machine was building up for Avatar. I remember just like because um there was the M Night Shyamalan film, The Last Airbender. I remember that getting a trailer in the summer of two thousand nine before Avatar. And I remember like so many people online at the time, like Louis was saying during the, the lead up to that film, everyone's like, how on earth is like, it's the summer. It's like July, 2009. The film comes out in a few months. How do we not have any sort of marketing for this thing yet? We might've just had like the, the title, the title card. And I remember I got, I was so excited. It had avatar day. And it was a day in August where Jimmy C was having like a preview of like 20 minutes of scenes from the film. And I remember going into the city to see this. I was violently ill. And I still like I was just like I was so excited to be seeing this. I'm like, I am so pumped for this. And I remember coming out of that like preview. It wasn't a preview screen, but like it was like a 
uh, uh, preview clips and people walking out of it weren't impressed. Like it was like all just, again, everybody was like 400 pounds. They had huge, huge neck beards. Everyone's like, this looks like garbage. Uh, this, this is nothing to get excited about. And I was like, no, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And is Rob though. We went to high school together. I was on the hype train hard for avatar. Oh like, yeah. Uh, like it was embarrassing how bad I was on the hype train for. Like I was going around like just evangelizing about a movie I hadn't seen yet. I actually had a custom shirt made because there was no Avatar merchandise, and I wore it like once a week. Rob's laughing because he knows how embarrassing this is, and I'm actually saying it for more people to know. And then Rob and I saw it on opening day, and we sat there in the theater. I can still remember the theater had like no heat, and so like we were freezing in the theater. And I kept telling Rob, "That's the climate of Pandora. They're making it more part uh, uh, realistic. This is the it's next a 4D level. experience." <laughs> exactly. Jimmy C was uh, really trying to make it attuned to what he wanted, and I can still remember to this day, and it haunts me. I actually wake up in the middle of the night having a night terror from this. As the movie ended, I looked over to Rob, and his words were, "He, sh- he took his, he put his hand out, and went, eh." <laughs> and, and after that, because I built this film up so much, and this is just when it came out, it wasn't the uh, the illustrious avatar that everyone made it up to be. That people actually were coming to me that I barely knew in high school, like, "Oh, what'd you think of it?" And I actually had to lie to save face. I couldn't after everything I built it up towards. I couldn't say like, "This is awful. Don't waste your time with it." And I was just like, "I don't think I've ever been so devastated by a film before." When Alita, again to bring this back to Alita, and my thoughts on it. When I got to the feed, when I was like hearing the stuff about it, and, and the trailers never clicked with me. The trailers just always looked bland. They looked blah. And I was just like, I, I'm going to go see it because I've been interested in this film for over a decade. I'm just going to kind of go see it. It's like an oddity, much like how I talked about um, things like Venom or just like I want I love things that are off the rails, good or bad. And this is definitely a, a, a case of it being good, but I kind of went into it just being like, eh, I don't have to believe. I was talking to Lewis before uh, beforehand, and he, I was asking him questions like, oh, is this like Wachowski's level goofy? And he's like, what'd you think of Avatar? And I'm like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, well, what your opinion on Avatar is going to kind of dictate what you, you like and dislike from this. And so I'm like, oh, good Lord, I'm going to hate this movie so much. Especially how I kind of like, after I built it up, for how many years so um i eventually see it and i was genuinely blown uh blown away by how much i enjoyed it like i i was shocked by how much i was just sucked into this universe and i i kind of just i i couldn't wrap my head around it and then i saw it a second time with a crowd and it was like i was i was even more blown away because that's usually what happens is that i'll see a film i enjoy the first time and I kind of, when I go to see it a second time, I kind of hold my breath to be like, oh, God, is it going to hold up? Maybe it's just the novelty factor of seeing it for that first time. And I was I was more enthralled the second time with it than I was the first. And that just absolutely delighted me. Like, I, and it's weird. I can't um, – when, when it comes to things that I like, I, I have a tendency not to critique them and try to dissect them because it's like, no, it's perfect. Don't The more you tear something apart, good or bad, the more you see its flaws. But with this, as I've read reviews of it, I, I don't get the critical consensus on this. It, it's weird. It, it's one of, it feels like it's the inverse of Ghostbusters 2016, where everyone's like, oh, this movie isn't very good. Um, the comedy's kind of lacking in some places. The effects are really kind of just shiny and generic. And then it's like, oh, A-minus. 
It's like <laughs> that that that's a weird disconnect. And I feel this is the exact inverse of that, where like the 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 components of the critics' reviews are like, oh, Rosa Salazar's performance is fantastic. The effects are good. Um, it's it's uh uh oh god, it's the Wonder Woman effect. You have a a new role model for little girls, and then it's like C minus. It's like, and yes, everybody. I'll be fair. Everyone's mentioning the Hugo romance. I don't think there's okay. one person I've read so far that actually likes the Hugo love romance. But uh, just to say but, one thing, like like Titanic and Avatar had a lot of backlash because of love stories as well. Where people were saying like this is an amazing film except for the love story, which is cheesy. This is the thing I want to bring up about Alita, though, and this is I think the reason why I like it so much is that. There is an earnestness to the film. Like there, like people are saying, "Oh, it's you can tell Jimmy C wrote this in the 1990s." And pretty much, I, I forget. I, let me look up her name right now, so I have it. Um, the screenwriter that that polished it after Jimmy C handed over the original treatment, Layla Caligridis. Caligridis. It does have that 90s schmaltz to it, and I think that's. I, I find that endearing where a lot of people don't. And I can't figure out why. I guess on one side of the coin, my answer is no, because uh, it's just so simple. And, and I don't even know if I would say cheesy. I, I do like the way you put it. There's a little more earnestness to it. But still, you know, nothing really was, was different from anything I've ever seen before, which is what I'm saying about it. But also, when you ask me the question, you know, is there any reason that you love it so much? I, I should not have come to expect anything less from you, right, Zach? <laughs> Especially after the 18th episode. Exactly. <laughs> it's sappy. The only thing that missed was dancing. Was there any dancing in this? No, that's that's all they needed for you to just, you know, make it the, think it's the greatest movie ever. Can we spoil everything about the film right now? It's only people who've seen it that are listening. Go ahead. Yeah, go be, for it. I would be fine with that. So I think... Um, I think Hugo is a is a problematic character, um, for you know, a couple of reasons, but not to the point where he ruins anything. In my opinion, it's it's just passable. Like I feel like it's not. I mean, I think the actor did everything that he could, um, but usually when you have a character who dies tragically in a film, it's always going to be the one that they set up as whoever you're most emotionally invested who's been the most vulnerable and who's been the most um, easy to relate to and that you care about the most and then they'll kill him off or her or that's usually how they, 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 they set it up so that you have an emotional reaction to it. So in this case, um, I don't know how you felt when he, whatever's left of him falls off <laughs> into the abyss or the, not to make a pun, but into the, like the, the, the clouds, but it's, there's literally no emotional response. Um, there's a bit of confusion because he, he does die, then he's saved, and he's yeah. reborn, <laughs> and then he dies again. So it's like there's a bit of a Kenny from South Park effect <laughs> going on here where it's like, oh, here here he is. Uh, you know, he's going to be fine because she's like that, and she's fine. She's doing great, and she's like that. So, you know, um, it's all for the better. And then he doesn't last very long. Um, I just find that that part of the film – there's nothing they could do. It was sometimes, you know, you're, 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 you're into like post-production and there's so much you can re-edit or reshoot in order to save something that's not working that well. But I think, I think they're aware that this isn't 
connecting as well because they've tested this movie a lot and I wouldn't make it a major criticism though. I think I think the character is not annoying in any way. I think he's just he's there and he serves a purpose and it just it doesn't it doesn't pack that emotional punch that you would expect at that time in the film. Uh, the yeah, way, the I way agree the, definitely. When she loses a fight in, in one of the big moments, big action moments of the film, um, and she gets chopped up, it's it's really off-putting because you're invested in her. I know, I know what you're getting at because I went and did some research on the manga, and Hugo's arc pretty much plays out the exact same way in the manga as it does in this, which doesn't doesn't excuse the film with him at all, but. How I see the character is that I see Hugo more as almost like a puppy she finds, more than like a love interest. It's kind of like the first time she's ever loved something. Because that's another thing in this film, too, is that there's no, even though they they kiss once, there is no sort of like sexual relationship between the two. It's almost like a platonic friendship brought to the next level, and yet neither person knows what to do with it. And that's and that's kind of how I see their relationship is that she loves him, but it's not a romantic relationship. I again, that's what I mean. I think the kiss is the kiss earlier in the film when I know that's obviously done to show that her new berserker body is much more developed than the doll body that Ito gives her. And I get it in that sense, but that's kind of how I interpret the romance is that it's not meant to be this uh, Jack and Rose thing where this is her soulmate. And in order for her to grow, she has to lose him. Or maybe it is. Okay, maybe now that I've said it out loud, that's that is what it's supposed to be. But it's not mm-hmm. supposed to be a a steamy romance. It's more of a um your first love. And considering that I that Alita is supposed to be, I guess based on what I've read, it's supposed to be like a teenager or like in her late teenage years. Maybe if, if anybody listening can 14. clarify that. She like she's a the part of her that's human is about fourteen, I think. Okay, perfect. And I think that's what it is. It's not meant to be a romance for the ages. It's meant to be a more, again, oh God, your first love. And so obviously <laughs> your first love doesn't typically uh, get dismembered from a giant like razor <laughs> ring from the from the, 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 the tether in the sky. <laughs> but that's that's kind of what the vibe I got from it. And I know that seems to be the biggest criticism with this, which it's fine. Whatever it doesn't bother me. If you're looking for if you're looking for uh, the romance of the century from Alita Battle Angel, I think that's more on you than the film. I but I think that's fair, and I, I, like you can connect that to like the fact that she's cringy on purpose because she doesn't understand sarcasm and she's experiencing things for the first time, so she's doing it in the most naive way anyone could. Um, and she does that speech in the bar. With all the, the the hunters, where like she gives that that really inspirational speech. While you're listening to that speech, you're like, "Oh, that's so bad!" And then they all <laughs> laugh at her because they're all like, <laughs> "Acknowledges that she's cringy, but she has all the rights to be cringy because she's experiencing things, including love, for the first time." I came to ask for your help against our common enemy, Ruishka. He's being protected by the system and continues to rampage, unchecked. And now he's after Ito and me. So I'm calling on you, my hunter warrior brothers. Let's band together and defeat him once and for all. 
Any takers? Hmm? No? Big surprise. Oh, exactly. I, I love the bar scene. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, it's great. Speaking of the bar scene, um, I really love that whole thing that we just talked about with the speech that she gives. But uh, I think the one of the parts of the movie that stood out to you the most was when Christoph Waltz goes into the bar and he screams and gets everybody to stop in their tracks by saying, everybody stop or no more free repairs. I really <laughs> love that. that. Like, I didn't like, pick up on that, that. Like the entire bar fight comes to a complete halt because he screams that. Like he doesn't even like hurt anybody. He just screams like everybody stop or no more free repairs. Like that is a full immersion into that world and what these characters are, are dealing with. And I, I really like when the movie, you know, kind of can enthrall me in that way. That's another thing with this movie is that with the world immersion and Lewis already kind of, uh, touched upon earlier is like everybody talks about like the world immersion of these things whether it be star wars avatar um i can't i think the last time i remember a a i don't want to say original property but the last time i remember like an original property getting the same sort of like uh, rhetoric used was like something like pacific rim or people are like oh this world that just you could you could live in it or you could feel that this is a a the original one not the the sequel that came out a couple of years ago but like that is something I, you brought up a good point, Rob. Is that like you do feel like whether it be motorball or just the whole idea of just um, Iron City is that it does feel like a real place because I know even at one point when they're going um, outside the city and you and I think was it Hugo's driving the little the little bus and you see these giant kind of just rigs and they're they're doing something I don't know if they're um, harvesting crops but those mm. rigs are actual real life rigs that or they were they're not really in existence anymore but. They're, they were used back during like the 70s and 80s to like mine ore out of like the grounds in like Britain. And, and there's a couple of them still around in Britain, I know. They're just kind of like garret, like they sit there. No one wants, there's no money in made, money to be made dismantling them. Mm-hmm. It's, th- it's small touches like that that add to it. It's like, oh, this is, it's real world stuff blended with the imaginary concept of Iron City. And like, it, yes, you do have that level of immersion. In a world where you do have, God, I'd say what at least seventy-five percent of the populace is cybernetic to some po- to some combination. Yeah, I definitely want to mention my favorite character in the movie, who is also from the bar scene, the guy with the dogs, <laughs> with the robotic dogs, played by none other than the lawnmower man himself, Jeff Fahey. I love that. I love that he just like he sits there and does nothing the entire bar fight, and then you actually get to see his like robotic dogs, you know, do something a little bit later on in the in this fight in the sewers or the underworld or whatever. And I really like that little, well, you know, Jeff Fahey. I will always love, but I like that little cameo. I guess we can call it from him in this film. There's a lot of cameos in this movie. Oh, definitely, definitely. But of course, Jeff Fahey stands out to me the most. He's Frank Lapidus from Lost, Zach. <laughs> if only that meant something to me. <laughs> one, quick word, one quick word of trivia about uh, Jeff. Ooh. We can call him Jeff because, you know, it's been part of our lives since childhood. Or yep. beyond. Um, he, um, he started a movie back in 1991 that was called Body Parts. 
And uh, the premise of that movie, it's a horror movie, is that uh, he loses his arm in a car accident and uh, they uh, attach another arm surgically and uh, it's the arm of a serial killer. So mm -hmm. he can't control his arm. Actually, The Simpsons uh, parodied this with like a wig, uh, not a wig, but like a... Oh, the hair. yeah, a toupee, like in the in one of the Treehouse of Horror episodes. Yeah, so that was a, a parody of Body Parts with Jeff A. But it's oh. funny that he's he starred in the movie that, that was about like reattaching different body parts, and then he he's, he's in this movie where like pretty much everyone has that condition. Yep, nice, I dig it. Full circle. The cameos in this are just are are some of them are a little bit more reserved than others, but. Like obviously, there's one that's the biggest one of them all, and we'll get to that uh, sooner rather. Than, <laughs> we'll get to that soon. But I, I was like, I remember watching it the first time, and I remember seeing in like when they go to the motorball the first time when Hugo brings Alita there to show to show her like, oh, this is what motorball is or professional motorball, mm -hmm. and like in like the what would you call it like not behind the scenes, but they're like in the pit station where they're like yeah, getting yeah. repaired. And like he has, because like, there's a lot of names thrown at us of all these characters, and it's hard to keep track. And he's like, "Oh, that's so and so. He's the closest to getting to to the city." And I look at him like, "Is that Jai Courtney?" <laughs> and like and he's just there long enough that I'm like, "There's no way." I, I'm like, "Really?" And the second time I watched it, I'm like, "Oh my god, that's actually Jai Courtney," which. Again, a testament to Jai Courtney's agent, whoever they may be, is that that guy is literally in everything. Mm -hmm. Who, well, whoever biggest cameo is Jai Courtney. <laughs> no, well, he. It's so weird because it's like, oh, I, I guess I'm the only person that notices Jai Courtney. I guess I'm the only person <laughs> that actually can recognize him. Because I, I find it funny because I know that's become like a joke now that like, oh, if like Jai Courtney's kind of like the white guy equivalent of Samuel L. Jackson, except he's like persona non grata. He'll just show up in a movie. It's like, get out of here, Jai Courtney. We don't want your stink on our film. <laughs> and, and clearly they're setting him up for something like, well, they're setting him up for as a potential, oh, God, rival. Uh, I can only assume. Who knows where um, a potential sequel would go with this. Mm hmm my favorite, which I didn't know really until I read the credits, was Jackie Early, Jackie Earl Haley as Gruishka. Oh, he has a big role. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that either, and I'm upset I didn't. <laughs> but you wouldn't like it's such like the only time I really noticed it was him is that if you really listen to the voice when he said when he calls her little flea. Because that's cause you, that's exactly what I was thinking because when I was watching it and i heard that voice i was like that sounds familiar but i never would have guessed jackie Earl haley in a million years sounds like I, the nightmare on Elm street remake <laughs> which it is except good i found him more menacing in this than i did is freddy krueger <laughs> maybe a little more uh, a little more jacked you know well yeah but i, 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 I looked a little uh, uh on the on the atkins diet or the um uh, What's the diet that's really popular right now? Keto. He was on the keto diet. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It shows up like he has trouble like lifting his blades because <laughs> they're so different <laughs> to him. Oh, man. Hey, Rob, that's another connection. Next week we'll be talking about Watchmen. Oh, yeah. Jack Earl Haley. Yep. Rorschach. That worked, right? Rorschach was supposed to be small, right? Yeah. 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 yeah he's supposed to be kind of like lanky and lean. The second biggest cameo besides um, 
Jai Courtney. Um, <laughs> no, just kidding. Would be Michelle Rodriguez as the other Alita. Yep. Yep. I didn't notice that. I had to read that after the fact. I guess Jimmy C has a good relationship with her considering that she was an avatar too. Yeah. But you know, I am a little disappointed that I didn't realize her because she was in Lost as well. Oh my God. <laughs> Wouldn't be right unless you brought up Lost at some capacity. <laughs> she was in, in some Robert Rodriguez movies, right? Yeah. Well, like, Michelle Rodriguez has been around forever. Like she's again, people don't realize that though, for like she's been working pretty much almost her entire life and she's been in a little bit of everything. She's what Jai Courtney aspires to be. <laughs> Uh, and uh, last but not least, um, we got to talk about Edward Norton, who does not say a word in yeah. the entire film. But the fun thing, the first time I was watching this, I, d- I did not, because I know p- a lot of people were talking about, like, oh, there's cameos in this that you don't want spoiled for you. So I deliberately went out of my way to, like, not read Wikipedia, not look at IMDb. And as I'm watching the film the first time, like, they keep showing this character and I kind of didn't know who Nova was. They keep saying Nova, but there's really nothing to really tie it to like a, a physical person in the film until the very end. Mm-hmm. And as I was watching, because I show Nova once or twice earlier yep. on. And the first time I saw Nova, I'm like, is that supposed to be James Cameron? Because how <laughs> he looks is that like he looks like James Cameron circa like 2009. Like he has like the, like the hair down to like his shoulders. It's kind of like it's unkempt kept. In the sense of like, it looks like it's just just manicured enough. I had, and, I had the exact same reaction until he took the glasses off, and then it was Ed Norton, or at least Ed Norton's eyes. <laughs> but I, I thought it was James Cameron. That was like, oh, maybe that's a big twist, like Split. You know, the ending of Alita is that the whole thing was a biopic for James Cameron how he treats people. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would have been mind blowing. <laughs> but that's why I mean, though, because like as I was watching this, I'm like. Obviously, like Lewis just alluded to, Jimmy C has his reputation of just being like this. Oh God, I think it's kind to say. I think a kind term would be control freak. And I'm like this, this like master puppeteer that kind of like controls the strings on everybody. And And he is immortal. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And I'm like, are they actually going to go for this and make it like, like, like a thing where like he's modeled after Jimmy C Nova? And I looked into like the manga, and not really, unless Jimmy C deliberately made himself look like that back during the late 2000s. Uh, but I'm so <laughs> glad, Lewis, that I'm not the only person that thought of that because I'm like, oh, this has to be something only like me and my deranged brain would see. That makes me feel so much better that I'm not alone. I bet, I bet everyone in the theater felt that way. <laughs> Even like grandma and grandpa sit in the corner like, they're sad Jimmy C. There was like a four-year-old kid in the theater when I saw it. I bet she had the same thought. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, Is baseball cap that's like uh, H-M-F-I-C? Which stands for head motherfucker in charge. <laughs> Does he really have that? Yeah, he wears it on set. Oh, man. <laughs> creative suggestions. Or, or disagree with uh, where where things are going, they can uh, understand right away what kind of relationship they're supposed <laughs> to be having as far as work is concerned. Alrighty, Rob. I think we have our first piece of Cinemonides merchandise we're going to sell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're, sell- we're selling HMF hats. Oh, yeah. We're going to do a whole clothing line. You get a whole, you get it across your ass on some sweatpants <laughs> if you want. <laughs> 
Okay, Dim. Okay, Jimmy C's daughter. Um, <laughs> we're going to trademark this so fast. By the time you're hearing this, we're going to own that phrase. <laughs> Rob, quick, get to the patent's office. We'll, we'll pause the recording. We'll wait for you to come back. I figure we have to talk about the bar scene because the bar scene is one of the highlights of the film. Yeah, I'm ready. That sound good with you, Lewis, or anything else you want to highlight before we delve into that scene? I think, I think there's many great scenes, to be fair. Like, I think by the time the, the biggest rollerball sequence comes in, the one that's really worth seeing on the big screen, uh, where she fights back as she's playing, by the time that scene starts, I'm, I was already, like, sold and fully satisfied. It was like, I was already like on board if it ended there, like let's say it was two hours and ended there, I would have said it was a good movie. So um, I was impressed that how much it had to offer. And yeah, the bar scene is definitely like the, it's the one that sets the tone uh, of the film and that is the most memorable, I would say. Yeah, because, yes, because I know you were talking about the motorball scene on Twitter a lot. It's like the, the, like the money scene of like, if, if you're going to pay to see this on the big screen, that's where you get your money's worth at the end of the day. And, but like you said, I, I agree with you. Is that by the time you get to that scene, it's kind of like, I feel like I've gotten my money's worth because like any, like I really don't like origin films. I feel like, like, mm-hmm. and especially now we live in the age of Marvel films where we have that obligatory origin film where it's like, we have to introduce the character. We have to explain where they came from, where they got their powers. And it's like, Oh my God, it's such a slog. It's just like, it, it's, it feels like it, we're just doing it because we have to, we can't just introduce a character. I really wish every film would kind of do like the black Panther thing where it's like, let's just put the character Let's just assume you know who the character is, put them in another movie, and then let their their own solo movie just be a story that they're having. Mm-hmm. And I, in a way, even though this is an origin story for the character of Alita, it doesn't feel like that. Because it's just – it's const- the story is just constantly unfolding. It's not like that obligatory moment where it's like, oh – like where you have, I know a lot of people are calling this like exposition the movie, where every like, every time a character opens their mouth, there's exposition, and yes, that does happen. But I think it's it's more intricately woven into the narrative of the film as opposed to something like Inception, where the film will actually just come to a grinding halt, explain to you the rules of the scene you're about to see, then proceed. It's not stop and go exposition, which. It's definitely refreshing in a film nowadays. Yeah, but, I, I agree. That's what I got from this. I never felt like I was, you know, any momentum was lost. If anything, it was lost more on me from the love stuff. And like I said before, I, I loved all that kind of world building and exposition for sure. Yeah, because as you're watching this, you go from obviously Ido finds her in the junkyard. He gives her the body. She hangs out with Hugo, just learning the world between the I kind of like the kids playing motorball on the street to the was the the centurions that are basically kind of mm-hmm. like the like, not the police but they're kind of just the the hall monitors of the city <laughs> and and you have the whole thing where she follows Ido cuz she thinks he's the serial killer and she obviously interacts with Jackie Earl Haley in a robot costume and you have all this because then by the time we get to I think she finds the berserker body and we get to the bar scene, and the whole point of the bar scene is that she's – I love this – is that you have this little 14-year-old cyborg girl, and she brings her boyfriend into the bar with pretty much – I don't want to say that her sole intent is to start a fight, <laughs> but it's, it's the whole idea that she kind of goes in there with the, the assumption. It's like, okay, I'm going to have to beat somebody up. 
she seeks out conflict or something like that, right? Exactly. I, yeah. I just absolutely love that. We can say that. She's talking some shit. <laughs> Basically. Ito says I'm drawn to conflict. And I know a lot of people now are comparing this to uh, Wonder Woman. And, and obviously Jimmy C is being uh, dragged over the coals because of his comments about that film. And yet, I watch, I have, like in Wonder Woman, I, I feel DC finally learned how to master the Marvel formula. And the problem, though, is that w- with Wonder Woman, it's like, oh, it's a fait accompli that she's a badass. And, mm-hmm. and forget and forget about Batman versus Superman. I'm not talking about that. I, I'm ignoring that for the sake of analyzing Wonder Woman. But it's like, oh, she's Wonder Woman. It's like it's only a matter of time until she she kind of uh, uh, takes names and kicks ass. And with Alita, it's like you're looking at this this again this 14 year old girl and basically a China doll physique. And at that point, yes, you've seen her beat up uh, Jackie Earl Haley and a couple of the other kind of just gang people. But it's like, okay, she's in a room full of badasses. We make the, like, that's the one thing I love about this film is that it is so simple. We're introduced, you have this like seedy dive bar that's actually below ground because in order to access it, you have to walk down a flight of stairs. And I love yeah. small, de- small details like that just tickle me straight. And she goes down there. You have obviously Saipan, who's the guy who we saw earlier. And even though you have him with his, his sword. Oh, and- uh, Robocop. <laughs> yeah. That made Pre- me think of Robocop so hard. Just the face and the rest is metal. Absolutely. He, he's pretty Robocop. Yeah, he had a mohawk too, right? <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> And you have that entire scene where it's like, okay, it's building, it's building. At this point, like Rob said, she's we we know from Ito's conversation with her about the fact that he won't put her in the body. The the line of dialogue, I seek out conflict, and you're waiting, you're waiting, because obviously Saipan is a pretty boy. He's a hot shot. And I think even though the trailers kind of ruin this, plus I'm pretty sure every single tweet that has a gif of Alita has that one shot of her of him grabbing her by what? The, the by the um the arm, oh, and, then, yep. and, it's, and her immediately grabbing him by the head and slamming his head into the table, right. which that I think's way improved from the original time they showed it. That was one of the worst shots. Again, not to compare it to Wonder Woman, but you like you figure, oh, there's gonna be a scene where something happens and she just starts kicking butt. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, that's fine. I have, I have no issues with that though. But it just kind of just hits you all of a sudden. There's no build up to it. There's no that like that level of just okay, what's going to happen? Like she gets to the bar. Plus, I think how that whole sequence begins is she goes to what the, the Hall of Justice, I, I or, or the factory. I think the, the name factory, of it is. Yeah, yeah, the factory. And she has like this again. I don't know who did the costumes design for this movie, but she's wearing. I love it. Like a blue t shirt. Like a pair of just trousers, and she has like a black duster on. Yeah, I I uh, I kind of took that to be a uh, Neo reference from the Matrix because Neo's got that duster on. A- any insights there, Lewis? Mm, I'm I would have to look it up. I'm I'm not sure if they were referencing other movies. I think they were very much focused on making their own thing. But I mean. It's possible. It's it's the sure. kind of thing you discover on the director's commentary or like the like when they release it um, outside of theaters. All right, I, I'm just curious because like I I, I tried that that seems like a Robert Rodriguez like touch. Okay. that's the yeah. vibe I get from it. That seems like something he would do. Um, I just again I love the idea that 
again, you're trying to, it's like, okay, you have this, this girl who is young and you're trying to show that she is so much more than what she physically looks like. And yeah, they could very easily, like if this was any sort of lesser film, you could have her going to get like a tattoo or have mm-hmm. her doing something just like contrived to show that she's rebellious. Like we have a scene where, um, she rips off one of the, the arms that Ido gives her and she has another one attached something again, something so contrived. But once again, but just having a piece of clothing, like Rob says, um, you're, you might not have noticed it, but your brain did that. It is meant to be signify something badass. So again, she's in the bar. Um, they start laughing at her. Like Lewis said, she gives the speech. The speech kind of goes nowhere and they all laugh at her. And I love how, as she gives that speech, she like leaps on top of one of the bar tables. She's crouched down, like kind of like in a Spider-Man esque yep. uh, pose she's getting primed for what's about to happen. And again, you might not have noticed it, but your brain did. And then at that point, I forget what happens. I think Saipan attacks her mm-hmm. or somebody does. And at that moment, obviously she knocks the table up and kicks, kicks the bottles in two people's faces. And you have this again in a movie that's about futuristic cyborgs and a little girl who has the heart that can, that can power the city 10 times over. We have a, just a classic bar fight. We have a yeah, bar brawl. <laughs> it, it's in a movie again where you have motorball and you have giant tethers with uh, spikes coming at them, and you have a little mini Michelle Rodriguez on the moon killing people, part of the United Republics of Mars. Mm-hmm. It's just something so small that we don't get in movies anymore. Like, can you imagine in Avengers Endgame there being a bar brawl? No, because that's not epic enough. Uh, that's not because, because I you wouldn't put those characters in that sequence because that's below them, mm-hmm. and that's the level of just like earnestness and just in a way sincerity because there there is a level of cynicism here, but it's that level of earnestness that you just don't get in blockbusters anymore. And I think it's it's kind of like what happened with Venom back in October was that like. You're never going to see a a Marvel film where Chris Evans or Robert Downey Jr. sits in the lobster tank. You're you're never going to get that because it's below the it's below the value of the brand. And it's like, oh god. And and that's kind of the sad thing like with the fact that Disney's going to own this in a couple of months or or again, however that's going to uh, the the pieces may fall with the Disney Fox deal. It's just like, oh Disney won't allow this to happen because it's like, oh, if it diminishes the brand, we can't have it, or it's below the standards of the brand, yeah. whatever that may be. It's, and I think that's what makes this so refreshing beyond what what happens later in the scene when uh, Jackie Earl Haley shows up. Yeah, yeah, I agree for sure. And as long as Jimmy C is involved, um, that Disney merger is not going to affect anything. <laughs> But if he's I, no longer involved, then yeah, it's going to be a problem. But he's one he's one of the, the very few um, who's able to do exactly what he wants and get final say on everything uh, in exchange for billions of dollars, which is not a bad deal. I, I hope. You have no idea how much. I, I, that's kind of a running joke on Cinemodies now is that we'll talk about a movie. And in a discussion, I'll ask Rob, Rob, want to guess who owns this movie? <laughs> and, and, and pretty much like nine times out of ten now, it's Disney. It's like something that originally was owned by someone else is now under Disney's uh, stewardship. But like this is the thing, and th- this does tie into the rest of the bar scene, is – if you look at any of the marketing for this movie, one of the images that's kind of plastered everywhere is her with the red kind of 
you don't know what it is until you've seen the movie, but she has like the red paint below her eyes. That's what the posters oh. show. Mm-hmm. And as, cause like, that was, that was in the shots. Like Lewis said from like December of 2017. And that came kind of one of the, the cornerstones of the marketing campaign. And as I was watching that scene for the first time and, uh, uh, Jackie Earl Haley kills the little puppy and I'm like, and she kind of like kneels and she has like her thing. Like, I'm not going to stand idle in the presence of evil. So innocent. Iron City is no place for innocence, little flea. And she kneels down to like the what we can only assume is a slaughtered puppy. Like yeah, not even it a, looked like it looked like one of Jackie Earl Earl Haley's fingers that would shoot out into chains was as big as this damn dog. <laughs> that, well, I think that's what the point is, is that like there's nothing left of this little puppy. Mm-hmm. Like, like it is just like it's it's a smear on the floor. Decimated, yeah. Decimated, yes. And the fact that like I'm watching this, I'm like, oh my god. Is she going to kneel down and use the puppy's blood as as kind of like I don't want to say <laughs> whatever you want to call it the 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 markings under her eyes and I'm like oh my god they're actually going there yeah and oh, yeah. oh it's just like and this is the part where I it really does tie into cinemodities and the fact that it's a cinematic oddity is that there are so many just gory grotesque things that happen in this film. I, I was listening to the film stage show podcast earlier today in, the, in their review for Alita. And one of the hosts there brought up the point that Alita Battle Angel is rated PG-13. Yet the film Eighth Grade about uh, a 13-year-old girl's real-life experiences in eighth grade is rated R. <laughs> you compare those two films. And it's like... If the MPAA wasn't broken before, I think this film's rating really broke it. Because <laughs> there's so much in this film that's just bonkers oh, on, yeah. a, on, on a violence visual level. And I'm not saying I'm against that. Like I love the idea that Jimmy C made a movie with uh, like aimed at like 11 year old girls where you have this level of just bonkers imagery. Like one of the things I really want to bring up is um, the fact that Jennifer Connelly is basically a brain in a box at the end of the movie. Yes. Oh man. They gave me flashbacks of cranked Two with the head in the jar talking to Jason Statham, <laughs> like the eyes, Jennifer Connelly's eyes are looking around. It's crazy. <laughs> She's essentially like she's alive. Like she's not yep. dead. It's just she's been stripped of her body. Yeah, Vector says we says something like this is the only way anyone gets to Zalem is in this form. Like that's that's that is dark. <laughs> I think RoboCop two also had a. a oh yeah, right. The, yeah, the, the the whole spine with the brain and the eyes attached in the vat. Yeah. yeah. The villain was Kane. <laughs> it was like this this spiritual leader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh god, yeah. The that, 
from dying it's literally a brain with these two eyes so that's that was my flashback when i saw that i don't know if it was <laughs> not, maybe that was also not to the robocop too because the film itself has a bit of that feel um or yeah the robocop, but uh, in any case go ahead uh no it's just it's it's so many things like that where you have so much like violence like she literally cuts a man she cuts jackie earl haley lengthwise mm -hmm. and even though that's again that's that's more your your actiony um comic like pulpy imagery but still like she legit just cuts him lengthwise from a <laughs> from from head to groin yeah it's like again pg-13 and i'm <laughs> like god bless this country God bless this system. Um, I, I, I know a lot of people are mad about things like eighth grade. It's like, oh man, like the twelve year old girl that should be seeing eighth grade can't see it. I'm like, no, take them to Alita Battle Angel. They live eighth grade. They don't need to. They don't need to see a reflection of themselves for eight fifty. They need to see this nonsense. Like this is the stuff that puts hair on your chest. This is the stuff <laughs> the kids need to be seeing. I hope that they use that quote. I hope Jimmy C hears this and he puts that on the cover of the DVD release. This puts hair on your chest. <laughs> I love that that came at the end of saying, no, this is what 13-year-old <laughs> girls should see. <laughs> Zach, last time I checked, I don't think the girls want the hair on their chest. <laughs> but you know what? Jimmy C's going to put it on their chest he, for them. He's, he's made a help movie them. that accomplishes that task. <laughs> he's basically made a, mo a movie about a 14-year-old cybernetic girl that's filled with testosterone. And I find that <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> One thing about the PG-13 is the MPA only allows you to use the F-bomb once. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they made the most of it. <laughs> well, even, okay, that, okay, thank you for bringing that up, because this kind of gets lost in the barroom scene, is that Jackie Earl Haley shows up, he slaughters a puppy, um, she, he goes underground, she chases him underground, and he essentially, because her body is not as, uh, what's the word, Okay, it, it's fragile. It's not as um, mm -hmm. utilitarian as the the berserker body is, and she basically is dismembered. Where all that she basically has is her like upper torso in one arm, and this is where I really think again, Jackie uh, Jackie Earl Haley does a fantastic job, basically because it is essentially just a voiceover more or less. Yeah. I don't know if he did any m motion capture for this. I haven't seen any of it in the uh, marketing materials, but like he is so menacing during this. And maybe we can insert a clip of it if we have it. What's the matter? No little toy doesn't want to play anymore. I'll turn you into a living pendant to adorn my chest. And I can hear your voice every moment of the day. Pleading for mercy. grabbing her by her hair like she really has no control over it and he's like maybe little flea i'll show you mercy and, she, and it's like and it's like, again it's building up it's building up you know she has to get out of this some way because you know she has to get into the berserker body and, and, and yeah like, and he i think he says something like i'm gonna i'm gonna like keep your head as my living pendant and wear it as wear it around my chest like, I think that's what he says he wants. That's how he's going to be merciful. He's not going to kill her. He's going to, like, keep her alive and wear her around his chest. Yeah. Like, and it's, again, really just icky, 
imagery that he's really kind of selling with the voice and just what what he is mm-hmm. and yet and how she sits there gets back to him with basically all she has is her one fist left she punches him in the eye and breaks her arm off in the process yeah, yeah. fuck your mercy fuck your mercy again PG thirteen movie. <laughs> I can uh, we can talk a little bit about the MPAA and, and and why it's it's so broken, like you say. Oh yeah. Oh, oh I love the MPAA. I hope they. I, I've seen the Kirby Dick documentary like a hundred times. Um, I, I hope they never. I change. think. I think I've actually seen that documentary as well about the MPAA. Oh, I hope they never change. Like that's one thing. <laughs> I, I am so. I hope they never change. It's broken, but it's a fabulously broken system. Um, it, it's like the Hindenburg. Yeah, they keep rearranging the deck chairs on it. Yeah, it never seems to catch on fire. Um, but yeah, like that that whole bar sequence, and that's the only thing I have to say about the film. And I love the film all the way up until the very end. And but like that bar sequence combined with the Gruishka battle in the sewers. I, I that to me is the standout sequence. And oh, another yeah. thing I and one thing I want to point out just one last thing about the bar scene, we'll move on unless anyone has anything else to say about it, is that it's also like it's so well lit. Like it's, again, like I said earlier, it's a dive dank bar. Yet it's so well lit. You can see all the action. Like there's none of this like uh, like my favorite example is like Avengers Age of Ultron where it's just like there's so much crap in the frame it almost like kind of like blots the the light out of the frame somehow mm-hmm. you know it's composed all within the computer the, the shot and yet it's so well lit like you can see everything nothing is hidden in shadows even the Grushka fight in the sewers you can see everything yeah, and, and I, even oddly enough that takes place in the sewer where there's not that much lighting it's it's all lit properly and that kind of goes to what Lewis was saying was that, again, you don't get that in Doctor Strange because there is such a, a tight timetable where it's like, okay, we need to have these shots done by three weeks prior to opening weekend. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you don't get that sort of just layer of just um, refining things, refining things, refining things that basically delaying the film a year and like change gets you which is again i get it like lewis said it's both a curse and a blessing it's a curse to the the pocketbook but a blessing to the viewer um but yeah i I, that bar scene man that to me that alone is worth the price of admission after that like if you had to sit there like run home to make sure that uh, you didn't leave the stove on you got your money's worth Oh yeah, I agree. Like I said before, you know, with the uh, the line from Christoph Waltz about no more free repairs that stops the fight before uh, Jackie Earl Jackie Earl Haley shows up, and then you know Jeff Fahey with his dogs, it was great. Oh, and also at the beginning when they first walk into the bar, the bartender like screams something like, "Hey, don't break the furniture!" And then Alita <laughs> proceeds to break almost all of the furniture. <laughs> kind of feels like a western. Yeah. Walking into an old saloon, but you're not from this town. Everybody knows each other, but they've never heard of you. And then you start talking shit. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> What's going to happen if you do? You're letting them know you're not intimidated at all by who's in the room, and it pisses them off real bad. Yeah, that's. but that's why I, there's that level of... That you don't get in something like a Wonder Woman. And mm-hmm. I think that's where I understand... I, I, 
like this is the weird thing about Alita Battle Angel is that as I was watching this, this was the film I wanted Avatar to be in 2009. Like I'm watching this, I'm like, this is just checking off all the boxes. This is the film that I bought, I made a custom T-shirt for, and in like evangelized for the entire like summer fall. And I think part of that too is like you look at a Wonder Woman, and Wonder Woman. I know a lot of people like Gal Gadot's character, and that's fine. Like, I have nothing against the character, though. But, like, she doesn't have any witty dialogue in that. Like, yes, she has some banter with Chris Pine, but there isn't that sort of just, like, you never see her beaten to a pulp like Alita is with her fight with Gruishka. And I'm not saying that, like— Wonder Woman is very much—it plays very much more on the fish-out-of-water humor than Alita really does. Yes, and I wouldn't even be comparing these two films except for the fact that, again, we have to, quote-unquote, punish Jimmy C for attacking <laughs> Wonder Woman. So we have to just say, he's see, his film does the same things. Look, see, he's no better than his own comments. And I think that's what makes a hero endearing. And that's something you don't get in the Marvel films. You don't get in the DC films. Is that we do see Alita, who is supposed to be this, this all-powerful entity, we see her beaten to within an inch of her life, to the point where Christoph Waltz and Hugo have to carry her out of the bar. They literally have to carry her out because there's nothing left of her. And you, you again, you won't get that in a Batman movie. You won't get that in Captain America because again, it's below the brand. The brand cannot tolerate uh, the characters being put in that position because it might hurt merchandise sales. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's interesting too, that if you, after I came out of Alita the second time, there's practically no merchandise for this film. I think there's like two, um, based off the movie that is, not the manga, there's like two books. There's an art of book and I think there's like a Dr. Ito like I don't know, like journal. I don't know what it is. It's not out yet. Okay. And, I, and I think there's a couple like Funko Pops, and that's pretty much it. Like there, there's no merchandise for this. And like Lewis said, that probably a big component of that is the fact that um, probably a lot of this stuff probably sat on shelves for months, or I'm sorry, sat in a warehouse mm. because it probably was all slated to come out probably during the summer of 2018 and then probably slated. I think a lot of it came out in November. I know that's in the Funko. Pop. I started seeing the Funko Pops back in November. Not to get off on a, a tangent, but I think that's just something that we really need to again another layer of this film that I think people are missing. Everyone's so hung up on the Hugo romance and attacking the poor actor. I, I, I saw one review claiming that he was such a bad actor he didn't get a Wikipedia page, which I think is really <laughs> mean to call like to call somebody out in a review. And it's like the guy's young. I think he's only like twenty years old. It's like you're really going to attack him because he doesn't have a Wikipedia page. Yeah, like I said, I don't. I, I, like you said, Lewis. I don't think well, he's working with the material. He's again. I, I don't think anyone's going to claim this is a this is an Aaron Sorkin level script. It's not. Um, but he's doing the best of what he can. Just when he gets executed, it's not the character we had an emotional connection with, and therefore it's the scene doesn't earn what it's going for. That specific scene. That's just my opinion on it. Um, I think. I think. Other characters we had a, a deeper connection to, or we got to know a little bit more about them. We, we found ourselves more interested in, in their background, uh, and having them, you know, dying in front of her might have been uh, include. Like I'm thinking of Christoph Waltz. I think you know would have made a, a more emotional scene because the connection between the two is is very well developed. How his daughter's name is used and how he cares for her. 
safety, um, all these scenes in the film. I thought I thought that relationship was very very well done. Uh, but yeah, the one with Hugo, it's just like, yeah, tough luck, man. <laughs> you got to live again for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. I, I uh, kind of in the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie, I thought for sure Christoph Waltz was going to be the one to die. And then when they didn't kill him off and they just kind of kept that relationship going, I was I was super happy about it. I thought that was great. I was totally invested in their relationship from, you know, not just the, the father-daughter aspect, but from, you know, when they have that kind of first fight when she realizes he's this uh, bounty hunter type of guy. I thought all that was fantastic. What would have been great is that when Hugo falls, they pick him up wherever he lands and then they build him again with whatever's left, which is like an ear and a tooth. <laughs> <laughs> and he just becomes this character who constantly dies and gets rebuilt, but it's less and less him. <laughs> so <laughs> she has like a piece of it. She has like a piece of his ear, and like Ido's like Alida, we can't attach him to your heart again. Exactly, and then he, <laughs> they all show up for for battle, and then the truck just hits him in the background. <laughs> oh man, that's great. <laughs> oh god, but um, no, I definitely want to highlight uh, Christoph Waltz here because he's an actor who I don't think Hollywood still has figured out how to use him appropriately. Obviously, he. I think most people know he made a splash in 2009 with Inglorious Bastards, mm-hmm. and between then and Django Unchained, he he showed up in a couple of things here and there where it's like Hollywood just figured, okay, we have ourselves just our our new villain. Like we're just gonna plug him into every movie where we need a villain, and it's gonna be like, oh, it's the guy from Inglorious Bastards. And I felt for the longest time that only Tarantino understood how to use him properly. And I, I think that's why Tarantino did use him in Django Unchained because he's not obviously he's not a villain in that character. I'm sorry, in that film. And still, since then, like he he shows up every now and again in different movies, and he, he's never used appropriately. And I have to say, this is the first film I've seen him in since a Tarantino film that you could. He's actually playing the. He's actually in a role that he can do well. And not because I don't mean that as a limitation of him. It's just it's the appropriate script and the the casting of the character. Because like you guys have said, he really comes across as a modern day Geppetto, and and God, Geppetto's been a character archetype forever, mm-hmm. and, and it's such an easy thing to screw up. Like even like I think the last time a Geppetto archetype worked well in a film that wasn't animated was something like RoboCop. And I forget. Oh God, what's uh, who's it? Miguel Ferrier? Is that who it was in RoboCop? That that kind of helps build. Yeah. Robocop, who's kind of the um, Miguel Ferrar. Ferrar, yes, excuse me. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> my bad, my uh, mispronunciation. Um, but yeah, kind of like that was the last time I've ever thought of like a Geppetto character archetype that was something like new and kind of add something to it. And even though this is more of a traditional way of playing that character, but the idea of having him as he's not just the the, the kindly old man. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, Christoph Waltz isn't that old, but that's kind of what you think of as that character if you're reading it on a piece of paper. And one thing I thought was so funny about the character is that every time, more or less, that he's in the film as the the hunter warrior persona, he has his little like roll around suitcase. Yeah, yeah. He's always wheeling around the little wheel around suitcase with his little with his hammer. He has to build every single time he does it, and and yet he can barely seem to control it. Like he's, it's just, it's just on the verge of him losing control of it every time he uses it. And the thing I found, again, it's just a weird sort of uh, thing I picked up on is that as 
uh, he's carrying Alita out of the bar, and Hugo's carrying the giant hammer, and he has because every time Christoph Waltz is holding it, he's carrying it with two hands. Mm-hmm. Obviously, physically acting that it's a heavy weapon, it requires uh, a very extraordinary level of coordination and just mental planning on when you're going to use this thing. Yet we see Hugo carrying it. He's just carrying it with one arm. And I just find that fascinating. That was was that a discrepancy on the mm. pa- on the part of the actors? Like, oh. Christoph Waltz carrying this weapon the way he does because he he holds it very very similarly in every shot he has. Yet Hugo just carrying it with one hand was that maybe the actor playing Hugo wasn't aware of what Waltz was doing, or it just meant to show that oh maybe Ido isn't supposed to be that strong. I I don't know. That's just that's a small thing I picked up upon that could be interpreted a couple different ways. Okay. Yeah, I didn't notice that. But that's that is a good point. Yeah, I think I, I think the fact that he was misused in some of the films that he made um, since Django won him the Oscar and then Inglourious Bastards, like he won two Oscars in a row for the Tarantino films. Um, so you know, he was firmly established as someone you want in your movie. But then some of the stuff he did, like I think he wasn't downsizing with Matt Damon. And he kind of played like a dude who's downsized, who's like, well, this is wonderful. I'm so small. Do you want a beer? <laughs> it, was, it was bad. It was very bad. <laughs> You're a nice guy, Bob. You're a little bit pathetic guy. Last night you dance, you laugh, but inside you cry. Who are you to talk to me that way? Dusan Mirkovich, your neighbor. Neighbors are friends. Friends tell friends the truth. Okay, maybe sometimes I'm a little bit asshole, but the world needs assholes. Otherwise, where would shit go out? Because wasn't he? Like, he was in like the Green Hornet with Seth Rogen. And, <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, like, he was the villain in that, and it's just like a like it's clearly someone's like, oh, this guy's a bad guy in a Tarantino movie. We want him, and it just comes across so just like. Not that he, I guess he was just, I guess it's a paycheck. Like who's going to say no to a Seth Rogen movie at that point? I think it came out like in 2011. But it's it's just like, yeah, it's just somebody that just like doesn't understand how to use him best. And it is nice to see someone other than Tarantino recognize that. Yeah. But it's but it's also interesting that again, Robert Rodriguez is very is in that same orbit as Tarantino. So there is that level of like, oh, maybe Maybe there was a kind of just cross-pollination of, of the two minds being in that same sort of world together. Or, I guess, social circle. Mm-hmm. Just keep connecting those dots, and then we're going to get to the end result, which is Tarantino directed Alita. Everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I want that. Let's get that movie. Where, where, are, we, where are we getting that Tarantino Star Trek movie? Ooh. I want that. Where am I going to yeah, get that? Yeah, let's see that. <laughs> we talked about it. That's I, I don't know I I know that like Paramount is in the process of maybe merging again with Viacom and like Tarantino's like I've been working on it but I don't know well like I don't know it's up to the studio now to do something with it um whatever Once Upon a T- Lewis you're the Hollywood insider any gossip on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood No I'm sure it's great Oh you you heard it here first folks <laughs> um, I just figured I'd ask that we haven't heard. I guess there hasn't been a lot of information on that. Just a couple like image like, stills, and that's it. Yeah, um, yeah they, they haven't started the marketing yet. Yeah, I think it comes out like in August. So yeah, so that, that's just, we should be getting a trailer soon for that. It's the kind of cast that you don't round up together for a mediocre screenplay. Yeah. Oh man, it's gonna be so exciting. Margot, Rob, Rob, you know about that, right? 
Yeah, yeah, I think we've you you and I have talked about it a little bit before. Oh man, Margot Robbie is Sharon Tate, Leonardo DiCaprio is somebody, Brad Pitt. <laughs> oh man. Uh, anyway, though, maybe a cinematic. Back to uh, the titular topic. I guess we should talk about Motorball, right? We haven't really kind of focused on that other than a couple brief whispers here and there. Yeah, and, and while I love the uh, the action surrounding that bar scene, I think, you know, like we said it before, the motorball scene where she's on the tryout that's, you know, rigged against her, that's that's some of the that's some of the best choreographed action I think I've seen in a really long time. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 the camera goes places that it's not a camera. <laughs> it's all it's all CG. But they, they work so much on every detail that you feel like it's a camera that's taking you to angles and spins that are just, you know, um, if you have a chance to get high before the film, like, make sure you do. Right <laughs> Check that box off when I saw it today. <laughs> In the bathroom break, just right before it, or the second time you go see it. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'll done. put a... I'll put a rock in the exit door so I can get back in. <laughs> I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. The only thing I gotta say about Motorball is that I wasn't... I have to say yes. Like, in, like consider, The only thing that made me concerned about that sequence is that like, as that sequence begins, like all the other like hunter-warriors... Or, or they are hunter-warriors and like different types of bounty hunters like come to like the starting line. And they're all like in the same... like color scheme it's like that again it's it's steel mm. it's metal plating and thank god she has like like a she does what the 99 on her yeah. shoulder and she has a little bit of what like a purple tinge to her mm-hmm. and i'm like oh thank god for that but i have to say i wasn't too thrilled with the motorball sequence because it felt very reminiscent again of speed the, the wachowski speed racer and ever since that film i think that final race in that film has kind of been the granddaddy of any sort of i know it's a a different type of thing that's going on i know the entire speed racer film builds up to that whereas motorball is not that same typical type of it's not the same kind of climax my favorite part of that sequence is she's able to somehow talk to everybody i I don't know if it's her helmet or that she has the ability to i don't know maybe uh uh dr edu gave her an upgrade that she can now receive cell calls yeah, she because, can get any phone call anytime throughout this movie, it seems. <laughs> but I think it's in that sequence that it's most pronounced. Definitely. Because she gets a call from Ido and the boyfriend and Hugo in that scene. Well, she she gets two phone calls from Hugo and one from Ido because as oh, she's yeah. like in, in the locker room, she gets a call from him and she's like, Oh, are you gonna be here? And he's like, Yeah, but I have to do something first. Then she hangs up with him. And then Ito's in in the 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 stadium with the nurse, and they're they're, they're kind of looking they're like those aren't normal motorball racers. That's all factory team. What? These two punks in the back have bounty markers on them, and the other guys they're hunter warriors. He starts like screaming and like running down to like the front yeah. row, and I'm like. Wait, there's no way she can possibly hear you. And then eventually, for some reason, he takes the phone out and calls her. What are you doing? It's set up. You gotta get out of there. They're gonna kill you. Which ones? All of them. 
I, I thought that was a hilarious line. She just kind of looks around. And that's another thing I love. She just kind of looks around, shrugs. And then during, obviously, the motorball sequence is when she, obviously she's being attacked from every which way. And she gets the phone call from uh, Hugo. And she's like, he's like, and this, is, okay, this is the part of the romance where I will admit it's a little weak. He's like, baby, I'm hurt. It's like pants coming after me. And I, I do love how she answers the phone call. Like, not a good time now. Yeah. <laughs> The only thing I think is interesting though is like if you um listen to the the what would you call it, Rob? There's a name for this, it's escaping me. The announcer of the of the game. Oh yeah, the announcers, yeah. The yeah, commentator. He has some- he has some funny lines. <laughs> well, he had, oh my, th- these were the groaners. Like, this is like the equivalent, like, these, you know, were the Jimmy C lines left over from, like, the 1990s. It's kind of <laughs> like the, uh, oh, God, what's his name? Billy Zane lines from Titanic with the, the Picasso. It's like, uh, what's his name? Something Picasso. He won't, ama- he won't amount to much. Because if you listen to the announcer in that sequence, it's like, oh, she's got a face like an angel and a body like uh, a body ready, for, ready for, a body ready for battle. Yep. Yeah, it's like, oh my god, it's like, it's like, like that's a groaner. With the face of an angel and a body. Where it's like you, you couldn't just have him say anything else. Ugh. That's where it gets too schmaltzy for me. It's like that's where it gets a little too bittersweet. At one point, they show the motorball. And obviously nobody's pursuing it because that's not the point of, of the match. It's not to play the game. Mm-hmm. It's just to uh, wipe her out. And yet the announcer is still commentating the game. Yeah. <laughs> even despite the fact that clearly nobody is playing it anymore. Yeah, they're just murdering each other at that point. <laughs> More or less. Oh, okay. N- nobody's going to think this is suspicious at all. Because even like <laughs> at one point she jumps through a, like, a, like, an LED, like an LED, what, billboard? Mm-hmm. But the yeah, jumbotron, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the jumbotron, and nobody seems concerned. <laughs> yeah, the announcer even says something like, "I've never seen anything like this before." <laughs> yeah, and like, and considering like we uh, clearly this is a very uh, Law and Orders world, and you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of introduced later in the film the fact like, oh, like the Hunter Warrior Code and all this stuff. We're like, oh, I because I know toward the end when um, Saipan has Hugo cornered. They're going through the entire thing. He's like, and she's like, get away from him or I'll kill you. It's like, you can't get in the way of a hunter, a hunter killer's bounty because once I see him, he's mine. And interference is punishable by death. And she's like, he's mine. And I'm like, wait, what? I'm like, did he just say that like once he claims him as a bounty, it's it's his? It's like, oh, okay, I guess. And then she brings him into the church and you have the giant like Ed 209 robots. And it's like, okay, they go through there. Jennifer Connelly helps decapitate him to save him. And yet somehow Saipan lost the bounty, but she has it. And he tries to reclaim it. And he gets like threatened with, we'll, we'll, we'll kill you. if mm-hmm. like that, That's where the rules of the world started to get a little, like, I don't care. It's like, you have a decapitated head being powered by a robot girl's heart. Like yeah. those rules, the rules go out the window at that point. But um, <laughs> it's at moments like that where it's like, okay, maybe you could tone down the world building and the rules just a little bit like that's where you can kind of just sure. like, it's like, okay it's like you don't you don't need it at that point and again you kind of lose grasp of what the scene's trying to convey it's like okay her her love is in mortal danger we don't need the rules being the 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 focal point of the con the, the dialogue at that point in the film mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
that's another scene in the movie that's really weird. We have the love interest get decapitated and have her holding his head in her like what was it? Like, kind of like, like a in a his jacket. coat, I think. In I his think coat. it's his coat, yeah. There were definitely um you know, I mentioned I think a four year old. I'm not good with ages and then ask them how old they were, so they could have been older or younger, who knows? But there were definitely some younger people in the theater when I saw it. And I was surprised by that, because I I guess one of the expectations I had going in that it was going to be somewhat violent. I didn't get that vibe at all from it. Like, like going into the market. I, I thought it was going to be rather, like, again, Marvel-level violence. Okay, okay. Just violence in general is, is permitted um, as, as mass consumption uh, father for American audiences. And no one seems to care. But then nudity is like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. You get an NC-17 for, like, Nothing. But uh, violence is just, uh, I don't know, it's, you know, in video games, like, they let you actually act on it and, and be the person who's shooting everybody, and it's available at every store near you, and it's just, um, as a society, we find that entertainment um, can be as violent as possible, and no one, no one seems to respond to it in a way that is... Um, uh, you know, feelings of disturbance or, or wanting to act on it. Uh, like it's been proven in a lot of researches that there's no correlation between violence and entertainment and, and mm-hmm. anything that happens in the real world afterwards. Um, so I, I don't know, it's very permissive. Uh, and then the fact that it's robots, I think is why the MPA is probably a little more permissive um, because they're like machines fighting each other as opposed yeah. to like the the Hugh Jackman movie um, about boxing robot. Oh yeah, real like steel. Yeah, real steel. So it's like a, I think I think actual being like definitely the scene with the dog, like the bar scene and the dog. I thought I was surprised that that they still managed to get the PG thirteen because it's it's literally like murdering a pet, and he's not a robot one. He's like a real one, a real dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I think eighth grade probably got an R rating because there there is a rape scene in the film. It just doesn't play out as such. It just it never goes anywhere, but it still puts you in that very uncomfortable position where it could happen. It just it doesn't in the end. Sure. But, sure. So I think they're looking for tone more than like what's actually being shown. And um, but yeah, they are they are completely broken. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, I find I guess I again I love I love the system that's that broken. And yes, it's the tone of it all. Like, this is a goofy sci-fi adventure film, whatever. But I think it's one of those things where you're like it's kind of like the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's like oh, puppy murder. It's like eh. Then it's like oh, love interest decapitated. She's holding it in her coat. Eh. Then it's like Jennifer Connelly as like a Lovecraftian. Like brain in the box, like and you see the heart beating and the eyes like flickering. It's like, yeah, mm, mm, it's like, like, like there's got to be someone like in the MPAA screening room that's like, we, like this should be our, yeah, but it's Jimmy C, man. It's like, and someone's just like, uh, there's so whoever's in charge is like, uh, like look, I like the devil and the angel on their shoulders. It's like again, I I don't know. Like again, it just shows you the influence some people have in Hollywood. It's, again, it's, it's all of all the problems that Hollywood has nowadays. It's funny that we don't talk about the MPA as much, and I guess Netflix is a lot of the reason why because they don't have any sort of jurisdiction over that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it's fun. Like that's, that's the part of this that makes this such a cinemodity is the fact you have all these just gonzo elements with this schmaltzy romance. Kids need more of this. They don't need this, again, sanitized Captain America like, beats up somebody. Like, we don't need any more, like, any more of that. We need stuff like this that's weird. We need more like never-ending stories and, and weird like, stuff made for like, adolescent audiences. It'll put hair on your chest. Yes, especially <laughs> your, 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 your little children. I think your best quote, if you were to be quoted in the marketing or, or, or on the cover box, uh, <laughs> is when you said, um, this is the movie that I wish Avatar was. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Fantastic. Please, they'd be like, oh, yeah, let's use that one. That's okay. You heard it here, here, folks. Someone's got to print out like a DVD insert or a Blu-ray insert for me. Uh, but no, it's actually, I wanted, I, I may have noted this, and I wanted to ask you, Lewis. Is that uh, let's play? We're going into the time machine. We're going to go back. What would have happened? Let's just say in 2005, Jimmy C decides to go, I'm going to make Alita over Avatar. And for the sake of argument, let's say it's the exact film that we watched in the last couple weeks. And that comes out December 2009. Ignore the fact that maybe technology, that, that Avatar's technology helped bring Alita to fruition. Let's just assume that. Jimmy C puts the resources in between 2006 and 2009 to make Alita what it is. Do you think it does movie? Basically it's this exact movie, but in 2009. Yes. Do you think it does well or does better than now worse? What would you think under this scenario? Yeah, it would have made a ton of money. Um, but the, um, the answer is a bit of a cop out. Uh, it's the writer's strike because, um, 2008, pretty much all of Hollywood shut down. Uh, and then it created a 2009 that was starving for blockbusters. That's why Transformers Re- Revenge of the Fallen was a non-written film that made $400 because <laughs> it was like the only blockbuster that summer almost. Uh, and then District 9, which is a very, very small film by Neil Blomkamp, just performed as if it was a blockbuster. There was just this window of opportunity because there were so few big movies being made or being released that year and the reason was they just they were all put on hold because of the strike. So uh, I think um, I think Avatar deserved the success that it got, but circumstantially on top of it, audiences were starving for a big ass big screen movie, and they hadn't had one in like at least a year, if not a year and a half. We'd have to go see what came out December two thousand eight. But um, like the the audience was starving for it. It's a, it's the same argument with. Um, why Incredibles 2 did so well uh, last summer uh, at the box office. Obviously, people were looking forward to the sequel, and they loved the first one, but that's true of many other sequels that are animated. Um, it's because there hadn't been a single animated film all year. That was the first one. There was one called Sherlock Gnomes, but that was like an abomination. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing trailers for that, and I was just like, my eyes hurt after I saw it. <laughs> Gnome dancing in like Borat Speedo. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, this is this doesn't count. So I mean, usually in in March there's gonna be like a big family animation film, um, and then there was nothing. So when you leave a certain target market or all audiences, all general audiences starving for one kind of film, let's say there's no science fiction coming out or between now and um, episode nine then there's going to be a boost of business 
because there's these people that are Star Wars fanatics. There's the ones that kind of like it just enough to go, but there's people who just want to see things that are out of the ordinary. And then um, Avatar came in like at the perfect time. So at the same time, Jim Cam is very smart about when he releases his films. And I think he was probably behind pushing Ali to, to this very weekend and winning the weekend having a narrative that it's doing better than it's supposed to do. I just checked on Box Office Mojo and it's at 43 already. It's at 43 million since its release. Um, so it definitely overperformed because the estimates, were, it'd be at 35, I think, uh, mid last week before it came out. So um, if he can get that momentum going like he did with the other films that he released where like the drops weekend to weekend are very small, the word of mouth is so good then there's three weeks before captain marvel then you can look at you could look at sort of a spider-verse scenario where it doesn't open that big but then it ends up at close to 200 million uh and then we probably get a sequel i think before we get to sequel there's one more thing i want to ask you because you're 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 my hollywood insider lewis is i remember because this is obviously probably the last film fox is ever going to distribute without disney having its fingers into some capacity Oh, there's another one coming. What, Dark Phoenix? Yep. Well, that Good might point. have some Disney feelers in it. Like, Disney might be in control of that by the time that gets released. If, if they are, then the movie's not getting released. I can tell you that. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I, I believe that. Like, I don't. I, I think if Dark Phoenix ever sees the light of day, it's going to be a Hulu exclusive. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but my question is, when, when The Predator came out back in, like, September, I remember you saying, don't don't blame Shane Black for this. Look at the fact that Fox is in the mid, in the midst of a takeover, and then judge the film accordingly. Do you think anything like that happened with this, where the Fox takeover by Disney had anything to do with the marketing with this, or just because, like we kind of talked about, the marketing for this was kind of just blah at best. I think it makes people uh, on pins and needles because you have you have the situation where you could find out tomorrow morning you don't have a job anymore in the Hollywood Reporter as opposed to being told in advance. Um, and that's like it's fine to live like that on a two, three week period where like there's just uncertainty because they're negotiating something and, like oh, for the next two, three weeks, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if you're still going to be here, if any of us will still be here. But then if it goes on for like a year, like it takes its toll on people and then it makes people want to look for work actively because they have to survive or maintain their their livelihood so um i i think i think the the morale was was very questionable on the studio side of things but then obviously the production company the people making the film and you know all the vfx those are all third-party vendors so they're not affected by that like we're really talking about the people making those decisions to to re to, to, to make the film reach profitability um, and maybe some of that anxiety played into the kind of uh, moving target, like uncertain. Like it, it felt very insecure the way the way the movie was being pushed back constantly. And then, it's, yeah, it, it didn't feel like they had something good. In fact, everybody thought they had something terrible. Uh, and then they didn't, which was the biggest surprise. So I think it made the movie even better. Or it made people praise it even more because everyone thought it was going to be awful. <laughs> That's what it looked like. Fantastic. That's because, again, we talk about that a lot in cinema. We try to figure out, like, okay, 
Um, how much of this is X party's decision? How much of it is Y party's decision? Uh, because one final question I just want to ask you is that we keep talking about sequels and uh, Disney obviously being in charge of this. Would you happen to know that obviously this has been a property that Jimmy C has had the license to or the film option, I mean, since like the late 90s, early 2000s in the Disney sale with all this. Obviously, Lightstorm, all their with all their contracts with Fox still be now a kind of grandfather to Disney, or would they be renegotiated? So let's just like let's be really optimistic. Let's just say that uh, Alita has a fantastic leggy run. Let's say it has like a, it gets to 150 domestic, not likely. And it makes around 600 million worldwide. Let's be really optimistic. Could happen, what, yeah. In Asian countries, it could really break out. Yeah, hopefully it will. But do you think will all those cut? And let's say Disney's like, okay, we want to be in the Alita business. Will they have to renegotiate contracts with Lightstorm, or would or it would be a lot of the the same agreements in place? I mean, all I know is that Fox Searchlight that does the the artsy stuff, like the favorite, and um, Fox Two Thousand are going to remain intact. Okay. Everybody who's working there is still going to be working there. It's just nothing is going to happen to those. Um, but then the studio itself, I don't think they've they've called the shots on what's going to happen yet. It's going to drop in April. Like, okay. And they say that April is when plans were going to be announced to everybody as to what what what's going to be left of Fox. Because you look at something like Bohemian Rhapsody, not to talk about the film itself, but just the fact that it made a shit ton of money and it, it is a Fox release and it's incredible how much profit they make because the film didn't cost that much. They try to keep it on a budget. Um, and then that kind of makes the case that there is a place for Fox at Disney. There's a place for these more adult targeted, uh, like, like older quadrant kind of entertainment um, because Disney is so focused on, on doing something that's all four quadrants, like young, young kids, parents, everybody goes and everybody's looking forward to it. Like Fox has a, has a niche in those films that are a bit more on the R rated side or, or meant for audiences above the age of 25 to 35, if that makes sense. And, and then older. So Hopefully it stays open and it, nothing changes and it's just the ownership has been passed on the way like uh, General Electric owns a studio or uh, Viacom owns a studio and then it's just it's a different owner but it's the same it's the same machine uh, but then if it dissolves there's gonna be there's gonna be a lot of questions for sure uh, as to what happens with all the properties like Deadpool would probably be the one that people worry about the most. All right. That, thank you. Like I said, that's uh, that's. I, I love conversations like that. I'm just always. I, I always want. I have my own kind of musings, but I'm clearly uh, the outsider, and it's always nice to have that insider's perspective. So thank you for that. So with that being said, talking about the future of Alita, the, the very end of the film, uh, she does. As we kind of said, three. It's kind of like the running joke throughout this episode. Uh, Hugo dies. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, he gets diced up, and twice, twice. We should mention it's not even a joke. He dies twice. With yep. Yep. <laughs> poor Hugo. Let's pour. Let's all pour one out for Hugo. Um, 
So basically, she's devastated by this. And the one thing I think is interesting is that she goes and confronts Mahershala Ali, who I don't think we brought up the fact that he's being he's controlled what at least fifty percent through the film by Nova. Yeah, and uh, James Cameron. Yes, he's controlled by James Cameron. Uh, Mahershala Ali is controlled by James Cameron. That's why he's getting all those Oscars. (laughs) James Cameron, fifty percent of the time. There's actually a whole other layer to this thing with Nova. That considering that Edward Norton's also a control freak of a celebrity, there's a whole other layer to this that we didn't even delve into. Um, that, that that small concept where his eyes turn blue, and then the other the, the other guy takes over. Like they could have made great com- comedic moments with that, where like he's taking a piss and then his eyes seeing <laughs> everywhere. like, no, not now, not now. <laughs> or like when he Because that's another weird thing that's in this movie And I don't want to jump too far back We're introduced to Jennifer Connelly Because like, she bumps into Alita on, in front of Ito's uh, Workshop mm-hmm. And we're like okay who's this And we're introduced to the fact that they were once married They had a daughter um, It's kept rather mysterious at that point But then the very next shot we get of Jennifer Connelly She's like in a garter belt In robe like almost like her legs are spread open. It's like Mahersha Ali. Like he's not putting his clothes back on. He's just kind of like standing in her bedroom. Yeah. And it's like a really weird sequence. Like again, we're into Jennifer Connelly is her setup in that scene is with her legs literally spread open. And I'm like, this is like, wait, what just happened here? Because like he's not like naked or or like disrobed. And wait, what? And then like she's still in her garter belt and robe. And Jackie Earl Haley in a robot costume shows up. Yeah. And it's like, wait, it's like, uh, what are you doing here? It's like, I got beat up by this little girl. And it's like, oh, okay. This is <laughs> this is weird. Um, like it's like, so it's like, I guess she has some sort of romantic relationship with with a uh, vector. I'm guessing that's how I that's how I took it. But yeah, you're right. It, it's not really uh fleshed out to any large degree. That's the only scene we get that really hints at it, right? Yeah. Uh, She's trying to do whatever she needs to do in order to get up there. Yeah, I guess so. But it's like like this one more like maybe instead of having him like fully dressed, maybe have him like putting like tying his ties. Just something to show that he's putting his clothes back on, and that mm-hmm. she just doesn't she doesn't just walk around like that all day. <laughs> if they did, the question is who who was performing in bed? Was it Cameron? Or was it? <laughs> <laughs> was it both? Was it both? Not oh now. man! Oh man! So, so what would that? Okay, this is this is get a little raunchy, but like does that count as like a menage a trois? Like would that be like 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 what are the rules for that? Like does a person have to physically be there, or is it through like the mental connection? <laughs> See, these are the important questions you need to ask after seeing this film. That should be in the commentary. No, this is an easy one. I think the menage a trois would mean that all three are th- there at the same time. So if you're playing. Tag team wrestling, then it's just two. Oh, uh, okay. There we go. Yeah, we got, we... But now, but the question I'm thinking is, can Nova take control of both of them at the same time while they're having sex? Can Nova achieve this like mental stimulation that no one else can? You know what I'm saying? Can he tag team himself? Is what you want to know? Yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> enough to for the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he needs Jennifer Connelly's brain. That's the yeah. scene. <laughs> Speaking okay, one last thing about Jennifer Connolly's brain in the jar. Um, considering that Vector had her in the jar and uh Alita walks out of his office, she ain't carrying that jar. 
Oh no, so, that's just there. I think is, is that just not like a permanent fixture? Like, is that just like poor Jennifer Connelly's just sitting in that office? Just like, <laughs> is, is she like a fish in a fish tank? Does like someone need to feed her or anything? She's or just is, staring at darkness with the case closed for eternity. <laughs> now that's that's the scary part. That she would have gotten its its R rating is the fact that like poor Jennifer Connelly's just living in this perpetual state of just like non living. These are the important questions that we need to be asking about this film that you won't get from any other publication podcast. Uh, see Jimmy C's daughter. We are asking the important questions. Ask your father. We'll wait. Getting to the very end of the film, we we see the fact that uh, she she defeats Vector and she cuts Jackie Earl Haley in half, and we go through the whole thing where we see her. Do they say how many months later it is? I think they do, but I don't remember. I think it's somewhere between three and six. Okay. We have the announcer again doing his thing where it's like, she rose through the ranks overnight. And it's like, okay. And we see her like in the locker room. She has, uh, she's like in her really super duper souped up motorball costume. And she has like the sword attached to her forearm. She slices through a tear just showing how uh, articulate and badass she is with that thing mm-hmm. now. And... This is the part of the movie that I really dug, and not for the reasons that most people think I will or I would, is that like we go out there, we see her, like, like they say, like, oh, she's on the verge of getting up to getting up to the city. Like she's just she's almost there. And we see her and she goes onto like a platform, like the entire stadium is cheering for her. And we we pan up and we see James Cameron, Edward Norton up there, Nova, looking <laughs> down upon her. And this is the part I think is so cool. Like, this is the sort of just traditional hollywood movie that nobody else can make but jimmy c and between the music and how there's no dialogue and you just have the music swelling you have the crowd cheering for you have the announcer saying all these things you know they are kind of cliche what the announcer's saying and the fact that she's pointing she, she pulls the blade out of her 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 what forearm socket and she points it as uh, she holds it up to the skies. We see Nova. He pulls his glasses back. And it, obviously it's a big reveal. That's Edward Norton. Uh, maybe Jimmy C and the music swells and, the, and it cuts to black. Most people are like getting mad at that, or at least that's the consensus in the reviews. Like, oh, it's a cop out of an ending. It's it's one of these. It's the Marvel thing where you're you're basically paying a ticket for the first act of a movie. 
I am the exact opposite of that. I, I actually, I'm probably the only person that's ecstatic about this movie and doesn't want a sequel. Like, don't get me wrong. They give it to me. I won't complain. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't want a sequel because I feel like the whole point of this movie is it's Alita's journey or growth. She, she is a child. Essentially, she's almost being birthed from the the the, the trash. I don't know call it the uh, the trash drop off. The scrap and heap. We, the scrap heap. Yes, thank you. Um, there's so much Alita terminology I need to learn. <laughs> and like essentially, she's almost birthed, and you have that like Ido delivers her into the world, and by the end of the film, she is this fully fledged human being and in a way it does in the context of the story or at least how i see it it doesn't matter if she defeats nova like we know she will it's the fact that she has the sword she has the skills she's grown she's now an adult she's no longer the child and how the music swells like i feel this is a complete story i do not feel that i was gypped out of uh more elite story like again it would be great if we see more of it sure the thing that kind of terrifies me with this is, again, it's like that same sort of Pacific Rim thing that happens where, oh, Guillermo del Toro works on the first film, even though Pacific Rim leaves a lot to be desired. It's at least a fun, pulpy monster film. And then you get the sequel, which is made by everyone that has the the exact opposite mindset of Guillermo del Toro, where it's like cynical cash grab, the movie. And we'll have giant robots fighting monsters, and there's no, there's nothing to it. It's just superficial. That's what it is. And I just, oh man, I love that ending so much, almost as much as I love the bar fight. But I love how the music swells at the end. It's you don't get that, you don't get that in a Marvel film. You don't get that in DC, and it's it's perfect. And I'll be quiet now. I have to agree that you know I, I think you know I've said to Zach many times on here before that I. I think that the uh, the episodic installments that Marvel has made the public, uh, you know, just they forced them to accept it. That's basically the death of cinema. It's just who cares what we're watching now? It's just why do I need to buy the next ticket, you know? But this didn't do that for me, so I'm agreeing with you, Zach. I felt that this was a complete story where at the end, when the movie finished, I was like, oh, man, I would have sat here for another hour and, and seen more. And to me, that's not like saying, oh, I feel like they, I got you know, screwed out of an ending. That's to me saying, I watched a movie I enjoyed, and I would have been willing to sit down and watch more. So I'm right there with you. If we get more, that's great. If not, I know I'm going to watch this and like it again. It's the exact opposite of saying, I wish it was an hour shorter. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, we feel like that sometimes. Oh, definitely. Like Pacific Rim Uprising. Yes, yes. That, that's what it was called. I was trying to think of the most generic, like, subtitle i could think of and and they beat me to it <laughs> i think i put it in the my worst movies of 2018 and I, I said something like it felt like a theme park instructional video they show you while you wait in line to enter a ride <laughs> <on> Pacific Rim. <laughs> oh my god it's, it's funny you mentioned that everyone that's yeah that's that's extremely spot on if Disney does allow Fox to do something with this, which I think is unlikely, um, that's where I do disagree with Lewis. I, I just can't see Disney writing anybody a check for something like this. It's like if if they break even, it'll be it'll be considered there's your good luck. Don't 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 abuse it. I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe we get some sort of like animated streaming service thingy on uh. Disney Plus. I I wouldn't be surprised of that, but still. I, I like to think I have my finger on the pulse of like the Disney fandom and like like and people of that ilk, 
And I, I kind of figured I'd start hearing rhetoric considering with the Disney sale, like, oh, maybe Alita, and this happens all the time with Disney stuff now. It's like, oh, maybe this character can be a Disney princess. Like like with Princess Leia, like, oh, Princess Leia should be a Disney princess. It's owned by Disney and she's a princess. And I was kind of expecting that same sort of rhetoric to kind of start like like hovering around Alita. And I have not heard anything about that. I don't know maybe if it's the fact that, that audience hasn't seen this film yet. I would imagine the same audience that would make that sort of claim is probably saving their money for Captain Marvel. Because mm-hmm. I would imagine that same sort of narrative will surround that film too. It's like Captain Marvel should be a Disney princess because it's owned by Disney. Every female character owned by Disney is a Disney princess. <laughs> I, I, I wish, I hope like what Lewis says is true that Disney does write the check if it, they get the returns that they want. Or I guess Fox does, but uh, in my opinion, Magic 8-Ball says Outlook not so good. There's there's money to be made, then Disney is going to be on board. Um, and if they're, if you're able to start a new franchise, that's like the hardest natural resource you can, you can dig in Hollywood. Instead of constantly recycling stuff because people see the brand recognition and they say, oh, you know, there's a new... Ninja Turtles or Batman or, you know, uh, Hellboy, for God's sake. Um, like, to be able to take a property that did not exist in the public consciousness at a mass scale, that was just a niche thing, and then to make it a franchise, like when they did with, you know, um, The Hunger Games, that was just a book. Uh, uh, there's so much money to be made. So if people are responding positively, let's say that Fox does stay as a studio at Disney that's meant for more mature audience content. Like we can, I think we can look at Captain Marvel that we haven't seen yet. And we're already able to say that Elite is for more mature audiences than Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel's probably like sanitized and very, very much for all audiences. Um, so I think, I think if Disney decides to retain that as a, a little bit like Fox Searchlight, the, the specialty Oscar stuff, uh, if Fox remains the, the studio that does things that are a little more mature um, and a little more gritty and, and, and risky, uh, I, th- I think we're going to see more Alita. But as far as the, the, the property getting like uh, diluted by the need to make a quick buck, as, far as, as long as James Cameron is involved, that won't happen. But if he gives up on it, then he sells it to someone, then yeah, it's game over. Oh man, please, Jimmy C, don't, Jimmy C, don't, don't, you know what, you, you kind of helped rebound from the disappointment of Avatar with this, like, I was always going to forgive you because you gave me Titanic, but this really kind of helped your case, I mean, I'm, I'm hope that's another quote for the cover art, <laughs> <laughs> I think mean, at this point, the title's not even on there, but this one, like, I finally see what people are talking about, keep going, buddy, <laughs> <laughs> oh nice. my god. One final thing, and then we'll move on to a cinematic status and late night um, and, and snack to eat. The um, music video? Well, oh God, we got to get to the music video. Well, um, the okay. music video is fast, so we'll do that. Okay. We'll do that okay. after this one. Okay, so the last thing I just want to say about Jimmy C is that this isn't the only film that Jimmy C is like producing this year. He's also producing Terminator 85. Which is another Terminator? Yes, it's it's the eighty fifth eighty uh, fifth film in the series, and it's the age of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> um, they match up uh, coincidentally. Uh, yeah, so the the title um, last week it's now called Terminator. This time for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Terminator, nice. just just trust us. 
Um, this is yeah. nice. Oh my god! I, I really, I really hope between Tim Miller and Linda Hamilton, I really hope that it's because like, I, I like all the Terminator sequels, even Genesis. I appreciate it for what it is. It's certain elements I appreciate it. I hope they, they, they bring that franchise back to its uh, not even height. I just want like a decent action movie with a Terminator character. Like I don't want much, like bare minimum. Who's uh, directing it? Do we know if, he's, uh, Tim, if Jimmy C is producing it? Tim Miller, the guy who did the first Deadpool. Oh, okay, okay. So uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, sure. I can tell you. I can tell you because it's not a film that I got to see through work, but I can tell you from a friend who is working on it that uh, it's apparently very good. Really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. You. Okay, I just want to make sure I heard that correctly. You say it's apparently very good. Apparently. Oh, okay. You got me excited, Lewis. Got me excited. <laughs> Pretty credible friend too. Like, usually, usually ends up being right about the stuff that he called. Oh man, Lewis. I knew I liked you. I know there's a reason why uh, I, I I last onto your rising star. Let's move on to uh, music video. Yes, since this is part of the music video series, we have to talk about the one music video. Well, maybe not the one. I don't know. Zach might know more about it. But I asked Zach, how does this tie into our music video month? And he gave me the Dua Lipa Swan Song music video, which I learned is a song they perform for the Alita Battle Angel soundtrack. Uh, but like I said, it's going to be quick. This falls right into the category of things that shouldn't exist because it's just a damn commercial for the movie. So what was it? Heartbreak Lullaby from the 18s episode, Zach? I said shouldn't exist because it was a... That and, that and can't help falling in love. So yeah, I mean, uh, no. I, I at the first at the start of watching this music video, I was like, oh, this is this seems like it's more like a deleted scene, like it's a music video that takes place in the world of the movie. But eventually, it just starts taking scenes straight from the film, and I was like, no, no, thank you. The song was pretty good, though. <laughs> I okay, I'm the exact opposite on this. I I really liked it. Like, the song's okay. The song's kind of like meh. It's too uh, low tempo for my personal taste. But I love the fact that it actually the music video is tied into the movie in the sense of like it's it uses imagery from the movie and not just the fact that they like sprinkle some Alita scenes in there. It's like oh she's like tr like digging through the trash heap. You see like the Centaurian coming down off like the mound of like yeah, trash. Yeah, that, that was okay. If that was the whole music video, I'd have a different stance on it. But it's that, it's the Alita practicing fight scene in the mirror that I'm just like, where the singer is dressed as, or has the same hairstyle as Alita. I'm like, come on. I was like, get out of here. Like, I can't handle that. That's get out of so, here. That's just so simple. It's just like, we got a song, we got scenes from a movie. Let's just learn the choreography and go for it. Like, no, give me something more. Expand on that first scene of the, the trash heap and whatnot. Don't just hard cut into something that you're going to see again in the movie. But the, you know, to be fair, guys, like the hard cut of movie imagery in music videos is the most 90s thing ever. Oh, that, that, exactly. Oh, like, God, you're I right. <laughs> I thought we'd move past it. <laughs> no, I love it. We should segue out of the podcast listening to All for One by Sting, Rod Stewart, and Brian Adams from the Three Musketeers soundtrack. <laughs> That's a masterpiece right there. Well, we'll, de we'll definitely play that in reverse at the end. That's what I was about to say. So much to play in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, but no, I, I think there's actually, I think Dua Lipa actually gives us a clue about the future of Alita. Because if you listen, to, considering that song plays over the, the credits of the film, mm-hmm. in this song she says, this is not a swan song. Yeah, so you know yeah. what, that, that means there will be more Alita. See, this is not a swan song. This is not a, this is not a swan song, swan song, swan dive. We've locked it down. Uh, Dua Lipa pulled out her crystal ball and told us there will be more Alita because it's not a swan song. Do you think the sequel is going to be called Alita Swan Song? And then they're going to write a song called This Is a Swan Song? <laughs> That's the third film. That's a trilogy. Oh, okay. And so the middle one is going to be This Might Be a Swan Song? We can only hope. It depends <laughs> on how involved Jimmy C is. It's funny. Speaking of the title, I know um, I was watching some interview he did with the BBC, and someone asked him, it's like, Jimmy C, it's called Battle Angel Alita. Can't you read or do you have like, oh my lord, us? Oh my god, what's it called when you... Dyslexia? Uh, dyslexia. The person asked them that. He's like, no, we have to call it Battle Angel or Alita Battle Angel because the next one's going to be called Alita Fallen Angel. And he's like, and he's like, and the person's like, eyes lit up. And he's like, oh, well, if it makes money, it'll be called that. <laughs> so apparently he said that. He says the next one's going to be called Alita Fallen Angel. Okay, okay. So the last, so, you're right. The third one will be Swan Song. Gotcha. Yes. Let's jump to Alita. And forgive me if I say Battle Angel Alita, okay? Because that's what's in my head. No, but you can't. I know I can't. It's Alita colon Battle Angel. Because the next one will be Alita Fallen Angel. And Alita, you know, Avenging Angel. And Alita whatever. I mean, that's assuming we make some money. Otherwise, it'll be Alita. Who's Alita? 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 There was an Alita? I don't remember Alita. See, it's not even Alita in Japanese. Her name's Gali in the original. But then, of course, the, the, the manga is actually called Gunmu. It doesn't sell in the Gunmu. Western. Is that going to really... I, and I'm, I'm probably not doing it justice. Four tickets for... Gunmu. Yeah. Which means gun dream. Gun dream. Yeah. So, Rob, Cinemati and or late night movie. So, I'll start with Cinemati, uh, because I think, like, as Zach already described it, as it is defined, a cinematic oddity... Uh, that's the easier of the two to describe. And I think for all the reasons we discussed, like Zach said, that, you know, that gonzo nature where we do get the really dark aspects of things in this movie. And he knows for a fact that that's what I love and latch on to. I'm going to give this a yes for cinematity. Um, the only thing it loses points for just to, you know, harp on it again is that love story, but everything else is just crazy enough and visually beautiful enough that it stands out to me. And, it, it deserves a place on the Cinemodities list. Now, if I move over to late night movie, though, and so like Zach said, I'll describe it a little more for you, Lewis. Imagine you are uh, hosting people late at night. For whatever reason, it could be anyone, you know, someone who's staying over your place, someone who is just there for the evening to hang out and eat dinner, watch a movie, whatever, and you have control of what to play. The question we like to ask ourselves is would you consider playing this movie we're discussing? And I know Zach and I think about it in a very different light, but I always like to get from my late night movies a reaction from people. I really want something that's stimulating that we can talk about that or, you know, can just straight up blow somebody's mind. And I think that hits the nail on the head best for why I'm going to say no to late night movie for this one. I think that, you know, it works for people like us. I'm, I'm talking more of me and Zach, because, Lewis, I don't know you that well yet. But it works more for people like us who are looking at it kind of in this bigger scheme of things, where I think more more often than not, 
if I played this for people late at night, they would just fall asleep. They would laugh at the eyes, I think Zach mentioned before, and then they would kind of start to disregard it. So I don't think I can get that kind of frame of reference from this movie that I want late at night. So I'm going to say no to late night movie. Definite yes to uh, Cinemodity, like Rob said. Uh, between a, two, a $200 million film produced by the most successful filmmaker in Hollywood, you have all these weird bonkers things. And that's been gestating for, God, almost 20 years in Hollywood. Yeah, it's great. And plus the fact that it is a solidly good movie. Uh, one thing we didn't really touch upon that much, again, Rosa Salazar's performance as Alita. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a Andy Serkis-level performance. It's weird. Like We keep talking about Hugo and how uh, how just bad his role in the film is. And yet it's weird that in a movie where we have a complete CGI character, yet it's the real person is the one that we keep attacking and not the CGI character. Yeah, that's a good point. And the fact that the CGI care, the titular CGI character is probably the best thing about the film. I think that alone, that's another just avenue as a cinemati. It gets, it gets in for that reason. Mm-hmm. And especially in a day and age where all everyone does is complain about the uncanny Valley, whether it be uh, Jeff Bridges and Tron legacy or, or Tarkin and rogue one. It, it's a the genie. <laughs> the genie from Aladdin, but the, the jury is still out on that by the time we're recording this. So we'll we'll um, we'll go back and re-edit this three months later when that comes out in theaters. Um, but yeah, definite cinemati for me. Late night movie, I'm going to say yes because uh, I, where Rob uses it as a way to like torture people. Late night movies, <laughs> I don't agree with that. I think it's something you put on is um, something that can be weird that you can't like. I, you know, you could put this movie on at like two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. I think this would be fun to watch as like a late night movie because it's not it's not weird. It's not Gonzo. It's not Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two, but it's 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 weird enough. But it's that same kind of like introductory weird enough where it's not Star Wars, the Clone Wars, where like anybody can watch it because you can't show this to like a six year old. This would probably freak out a six year old mm-hmm. at a few parts. But like if you have like, like I don't know, like a 10 year old nephew that wants to watch this or something or, or niece, I, th- I think they could definitely appreciate this. Right on. All right, Lewis, what do you think? Do you th- is this a cinematic oddity and or a late night movie? Uh, I would say uh, I would say it's a cinemodity, is how you call it. Yep. Yes. Um, definitely for all reasons mentioned, so I, I won't have to 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 go over that again. Um, I think I think we all recognize how unique uh, of a property this is, and the fact that the money was approved and that it looks at that scale is it, it makes it a must see just for how odd it is. Um, and then as far as late night movie, I think. I think the big screen is so essential to it that would I bring a bunch of friends for a late night screening in IMAX? Yes. Um, but would I show it at home as, as one of these, you know, films that have is a must see because it's going to change your perspective on things. I think the visual and the sound spectacle is, is so important to see on the big screen that uh, you're going to lose a, huge part of the appreciation for the experience itself once it hits um you know netflix and one there's going to be a a bunch of people are going to watch this on a plane on a flight to Mm. to france and they're going to think it's terrible because it's going to be on that really small screen that's a good point that's a really good point yep 
Actually, now I think about it, Lewis opened up a whole new possibility for late night movies, Rob. The late See, night IMAX? A late night IMAX showing. We've never thought of that before. No, no, but I would love to do it. <laughs> oh, my God. Imagine elves. IMAX 3D <laughs> at night. Maybe we could actually see something in Elf Vision then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, quick. Someone call Mark Cuban. We need to remaster a copy of Elves. Pronto. Yes. So, no, yeah, that is, a, that is a great point you brought up, Lewis. Another thing I want to I mention, uh, Zach, correct me if I'm wrong. Lewis, you might be the first guest we've had on here that's actually said the name of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, actually said the word cinemodity. I don't think we got Ryan to say it. I think Josh from... Uh, our Unsolved Mystery series, when he asked what the name was, he just said we were great marketers. <laughs> I don't think he repeated it. But so thank you, Lewis. You got it perfectly correct. I mean, it might have been a mistake, but sure. <laughs> just like this podcast as a just whole, stumbled, a mistake. Stumbled. I think it's I think it's interesting to only tackle one film and then talk about it for, you know, over two hours. I think it, it, it leads to a lot of interesting perspectives. Um, it's basically, you know, I think your podcast is the, the equivalent of getting out of a movie and then going to a diner and, you know, grabbing food with a bunch of friends that love movies as much as you do. And it just, I remember when I saw Prometheus, there was four of us and I think we had beers and nachos for like three hours, just debating whether it was a worthy, you know, successor to Alien or if it deserved to be dismissed or, uh, respected. And yeah, that's. That's the most fun thing is to is to discuss these movies that are a little um, debatable because they're not perfect, but at the same time, you can't stop thinking about them. So, right on. Well, we're we're cool glad beans. to hear that, and we're glad to hear that you mentioned the food as well because that's exactly where we have to go next. I don't know if you know, Lewis, but Zach and I own our own Cinemodities restaurant, <laughs> and it it hemorrhages money like left and right. But somehow we're able to keep it afloat. And every week when we discuss a movie, and as Zach said, we talk about what snack we should eat during it, this item that we, or the items I say we, we discuss, they go on the Cinemodities menu that someone can order at our restaurant. So when you pitch your snack, it's definitely, it's got some, uh, you know, authority to it. Where's this restaurant? Sorry. What? Uh, physic physically, it's in a different dimension. I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually in the spot in Times Square where Mars twenty one twelve oh. used to be. That's, oh, where that's we just right. Live. That's <laughs> where it is. It's in some of TGI Fridays in Times Square. Exactly. <laughs> it, imagine, like I tell, I, like, uh, like I tell Rob, it's just like imagine Plant Hollywood, yet somehow is even less profitable. <laughs> Well, now that that's established, definitely the importance of, of the suggestion I'm about to make is, is tenfold. Okay. Well, then, Zach, would you did you want to start with Lewis then? Would you get, uh, get a, a fresh snack on here? No, let's let Lewis be the crescendo. Oh, okay. Um, okay. He's, he's built it up. Let's let him go out on top. Um, my snack would be, I figure we don't have enough desserts on the Cinemodis menu. Hmm. And I'm not going to be too weird with this. I figured a chocolate bar, like a rather nice. I figured you never get chocolate bars in a restaurant, but how about some nice artisan chocolate that apparently Alita loves so much that she asked for it twice? Still need proper nourishment for your brain. You have any chocolate? Right on, right on. And, uh, and the, the title of it is: Do you have any chocolate? 
that's the title of it. Chocolate? That's how you order it. You say the word. Do you have any chocolate? Do you have any chocolate? Why, yes, we do. <laughs> so I, uh, I definitely thought of that as well. But I was actually thinking of introducing the orange that she eats <laughs> into this. it as well. So, so my pitch is you order the you order the Alita meal or whatever, and it's the bar of chocolate that Zach described on a plate next to an unpeeled orange. And you have to eat the orange without peeling it unless Christoph Waltz just happens to be at our restaurant that day to peel it for you. And I'm not saying we get Christoph Waltz to be there in any like regular capacity. It's a co- it would have to be a complete coincidence, but that's the only way you can eat this orange without the peel. I guess something I should tell Lewis is that there's usually very many qualifications and caveats to my meals that I get to the cinema of these restaurants. They usually involve an experience as well. <laughs> Nothing is as straightforward as it should be at the cinema of these restaurants. It takes a while before you get the bill. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Most people leave before we can give them the bill. Makes sense. Oh my god. So Lewis, what is your snack for Alita Battle Angel? I'm actually gonna go <laughs> Oh, you see, I, I made myself laugh, so it won't be as funny. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with weed muffins. Oh. Oh, I like, okay, that I makes like sense. this. <laughs> uh, with, like, blue, blueberry or banana as the, as the um, hiding flavor. I think, I think the movie is worthy of being experienced under the influence of uh, some kind of recreational drug because um, it just helps you being even more immersed into this universe that they spend so much time creating. So um, if you go to the restaurant before the film, then, you know, you're all set. I could not agree more. <laughs> Interesting. Go, going to the Cinemati's restaurant before the film. Interesting. For the, menu, for the menu, you should call them space cakes. That's another term for it. Mm, yep. That's a good one. Rob's our, our, our residential drug expert, so I defer all these sort of decisions to his expertise. No, I love it. I, I think that we don't have any uh, any weed-related products on the menu. Uh, so I think that, you know, we should have them ready to, ready to go, you know, before the movie. Absolutely. Great idea. And it's, it's legal in Canada, where I'm from. It's also legal in California, where I am right now. So in It's my legal mind- in Colorado, where I am right now. What a coincidence. Yep. <laughs> there you go. Space cakes on the menu. For the the Alita themed space cakes. Perfect. That's um, and I mean you know I do have those friends that smoke up before any movie like you know they go see like a legal drama and they're gonna smoke up before which is counterproductive. Like, <laughs> but um, you know if you're gonna go see something like this, then it's completely justified. Um, I'm pretty right sure. On. I'm pretty sure that's how Rob saw Sicario: Day of the Soldado. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Filled with a theater full of veterans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess I should say how my theater going experience for this real quick. I know Rob knows about this, but I didn't get to oh, ever say it. How yeah. I, how could I almost forget to ask you to talk about this again? <laughs> oh God, um, it's a uh, it's a running gag on this podcast, Lewis. Anytime I go see a movie in a movie theater, something happens in the theater that just ruins the experience for me. Every time. Every time, like it's it's shocking to actually come Avengers Endgame. We're devising an entire experiment about that, but that will that'll come out in a couple of weeks. I go to see Alita. I see it. it's like my theater has two big theaters. I'm in the big theater because I want to see it on the largest 
screen, best sound system. And I get into the theater, and there's two people in the theater before I was there. And I have like a, like a thing of popcorn, and I'm eating it, and I'm not really paying attention. I'm kind of in my own world, just thinking about things. And I'm chewing on it, and I realize there's these two people in front of me, and they're kind of just like flailing their arms, but they're not making any noise. I'm like, wow, I must be chewing really loud that I can't hear anything that they're saying. And I'm like, like what's going on? So like, I eventually I just like I stopped eating popcorn. I'm just kind of sitting there listening to like the pre-show. Maria Menounos is telling me about some new app, and I realized the people are like really like animated, but they're not talking. And I'm like, wait a second. And I realized, oh god, they're mute and they're talking through sign language. And I'm like, oh, I'm like I've never seen this before. And like going to the movies, I've never seen a, a mute couple or anybody mute. Uh, Watching a movie because I know at one point Like one of the like 15 assistant managers At the theater came in and gave them like the The, the headset that has like the closed captioning And I'm like okay I'm like this is Something new and then I didn't realize That um during the movie That this couple Was actually going to talk through the entire Film and by talk all they Did was gestate the entire two Hours so I've never Heard of this before but I think this is A, a first is that I've never been distracted from a film by people that maybe they weren't talking. They just constantly were moving the entire time and distracting my, like, and just pulling away from my field of vision where they're just constantly moving. And I'm like, and I told somebody about it when I came out of the theater and they're like, why didn't you complain to the theater management? And I'm like, how do I complain that somebody's ruining a movie for me that they can't even talk? <laughs> I think, I think it would have been a, it would make for a great story if you told uh, a person who's mute to shut the fuck up. <laughs> and that's and that's essentially what it was. I I I've never heard anybody uh, tell a story about how a mute couple ruined a movie for them, but apparently there's a first time for everything. That's the, just the public ridiculous. opinion on your side on this one, I'm sure. <laughs> oh yeah, me too. And uh, that's ridiculous. And I don't I don't know. I don't think I said this to you, Zach, when he first when you first told me this story. But I'm kind of shocked that this isn't like a key and peel sketch. Where, you know, one of them is the deaf person, like, interrupting the movie, or the mute person, whatever, and then, like, the other one is the one who doesn't know if they should complain or not. Like, that is comedy gold right there, and you lived it. Like, Dave Chappelle, when there was, like, a KKK leader, he's all wearing his hood, (laughs) he takes off the hood, and he's black, but doesn't know because he's blind. Show us your face, Cletus! (laughs) (laughs) How could this have happened? A black white supremacist. Our search for answers led us here to the Wexler Home for the Blind, where Mr. Bigsby spent the first 19 years of his life. Bridget Wexler is the home's headmistress. Well, he was the only Negro we'd ever had around here, so we figured we'd make it easier on Clayton by just telling him and all the other blind kids that he was white. Could have done is you could have gone right in front of them and then started just stating like crazy the way they are then just like just do like um use your tongue like uh you know the sicilian mob like they have this this gesture that means like i'm gonna you know um cut your head off <laughs> but, oh my god <laughs> really means stop it's just you take your thumb and you just do like from left to right on your throat you know take it to the next level it would have worked, you know. You, 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 you. I'm sure they would have understood. <laughs> Qua- Silencio, please. Oh my God! But yeah, I, I, I felt like I had to bring that up, and I just completely forgot about it until now. Um, 
Alrighty, before we go, I want to thank Lewis again. Thank you so much for coming on. It's always fun talking with my own my own personal Hollywood insider. Yeah, we really appreciate it. To get this insight is something we don't usually have, and it's uh, it's just awesome to talk about some of these topics that never would have come up otherwise. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, now you guys can tell your friends that uh, apparently the new Terminator doesn't suck. <laughs> yeah, boy. And I think we also... Have- we have a new testimonial for the Cinemonides website after uh, Jenny Nicholson said that uh, that we were just some podcast. Oh, we yeah. also now have Lewis that says, Cinemonides, this probably wasn't this probably was a mistake. <laughs> See, that's what that's what we have. We're, we're we're racking up all those testimonial folks from the people that really matter on the internet. <laughs> Alrighty, Rob. So how, I think we discussed it earlier, but how are we gonna end this episode? Yeah, I think uh, I think we have the Dua Lipa song as well as the song uh, Lewis mentioned earlier that I do not remember. But uh, I guess, Lewis, if you don't know, every episode we like to play music uh, in reverse to some extent. So we're going to take that song you mentioned and we're going to flip it on backwards and give it a play. See how it sounds. That's a, That's a huge privilege for your listeners. Oh, my God.